Six-Pack Lapidot, I want to give a quick shout-out to our partners, the strength guys in this app that we have. It can be found at positionsofpower.programs with an S dot app. And the strength guys who coach people like Taylor Atwood, have you heard of him? He's pretty good. Uh, they've had several world champions, several national champions, and uh, I mean, a laundry list of records, national records, world records have been broken, etc. But they have an app with their elite level programming available, video tutorials. Uh, I mean, the whole nine, it's one stop shop once you're in here. There's a Discord where they're doing video review of your lifts. Um, to get all your lifts analyzed so you get elite level programming and coaching for $29.99 US a month. Positionsofpower.programs.app. Go there and get yourself started. <laughs> Well, man, Eric Helms, how you doing, sir? Uh, like I said off air, that I'll, it'll, I'll I'll repeat it again. I'm better now. <laughs> this charming devil, Rory. Okay, he's a tall glass <laughs> of water. He's a handsome Stop. devil. He's a handsome devil. He's smart, um, highly educated, and fucking charming, Rory. All right, and looking it's at his resume, it, he's a full package. And, and looking at his resume, I don't know if we're qualified to ask him too many questions. All right, we, we'll, we, we're going to ask him questions. He'll be like, right, okay, well, geez. You're, not, you're not qualified to state my resume. Is, that, is that what right. you're getting at? Yeah. <laughs> I can't even state his resume. It's, it's, it's humbling for me anyways. It, we'll be here for a okay. minute. But, um, <laughs> but you were saying before, well, you know what? Let me, let's get the resume out the way. Let's do this just so people know um, what we're dealing with. Should so, we let them know they can put this on two times speed and fast forward if they, if they desire? Skip the next 90 seconds or so. Yeah, I'll, I'll timestamp <laughs> it for people. But um, no, I mean, so obviously you were into bodybuilding, got your pro card, IPF powerlifter um, since 2007. And it's not often that I meet an OG that's been doing it longer than me. I'm 2008. So you got me beat, my man. And that doesn't happen very often when people come on. Um, pro bodybuilder from the early 2000s. I mean, you've been doing this for a hot minute, but in terms of, and that's just on the competition side yourself, but in terms of your resume, and if I leave stuff off, by all means, jump in, but published uh, multiple peer review articles in exercise science and nutrition journals, writes for commercial fitness publications, taught undergraduate and graduate level nutrition and exercise science, Speaks internationally at academic and commercial conferences for fitness, nutrition, and strength and conditioning. Has a BS in fitness and wellness, an MS in exercise science, a second master's in sports nutrition, a PhD in strength and conditioning, and is a research fellow for AUT at the Sports Performance Research Institute of New Zealand and worked with athletes like Bryce Lewis, Jessica Bittner, um, got his own podcast. And uh, Frank, man, if, if I left anything off, Probably, but you're on a uh, TV show recently, weren't you, Eric? Talking about uh, strength and conditioning as well. the old uh, o- Omar that, that snuck me onto the History Channel. You know, you uh, just like uh, you know, if you if you watch Terminator One, 
Okay, here's a throwback for y'all. Do you remember the scene where, where Reese is having a flashback and there's a Terminator that breaks into his facility and starts shooting everybody with a laser Gatling gun? Yeah. Terminator 1. Remember that scene? Do you know who that is? Fuck off, that's you. Oh, yeah. It's that's- like, uh- <laughs> <laughs> that was, in fact, me. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was one years old at that point, uh, but I had just developed quite the early uh, early physique. Now, that was Franco Colombo. Whoa. So Arnold, in his early days, was sneaking the homies into the limelight, just like Omar did as having me as a guest appearance on the uh, the History Channel. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the Franco of, of Terminator, if you will. <laughs> in, in that, so how did, um, I'm, how did that come about with, with Omar finding... Get hopping on the History Channel. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. So um, Omar was keeping it hush hush, but he kept dropping me hints because he had you know an NDA. Like this is big time stuff, you know. This is this isn't like, hey, let's make a podcast like him and I did a few years back, and like you guys know know this space quite well. Um, so Omar is is a is a closet big time history buff, and like I mean, to some people know me as being a bit of an amateur like strength sport historian. But that's like a really narrow little tiny thing and, and an emphasis on amateur. But um, yeah, Omar, like uh, he knows details about Hannibal Barca that, well, first off, and most people just know him as Hannibal. You know, now I say Hannibal Barca just from, you know, proximity <laughs> exposure to his knowledge. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Omar is a big time history buff. And I think I honestly think it came down to some people at the History Channel, uh, one person or, or, or two or something like that you know, they lifted and they listened to iron culture and they heard, you know, Omar hosting and how we kind of have this historical bent and his, all, all his little side references. And they thought he would be a really good host for this history channel program on, you know, talking about the history of various uh, ancient warriors in different cultures. And then, you know, what, what did their training actually look like? So they have like legit historians on there mm. and then they do interviews with exercise scientists. And it's the kind of thing where like, like how big is it right now to be like the ancestral person, like, like liver King and all this nonsense <laughs> that is both like uh, offensive to, to actual historical context and indigenous people and also terribly wrong on the exercise science space. So uh, Omar thought it would be a good opportunity if he got creative control, which they gave like complete creative control to him to do his own thing and to try to get relatively like basic concepts and information out, but to a mainstream audience with legit people and it's kind of up his alley. It blends two worlds. So I, he, he, when he, when he told me, I was like, that's, that's awesome. And good for you. And he was like, and guess what? We're, we're, we're sneaking you in for the, the two minute expert clips. And I was like, all right, cool. So it's so, and that's life, man, is once you start doing one thing, other doors open up that you never see, like yes. just keep hammering away and putting things out there. Um, like somewhat similar. I mean, back in the day, like 10 years ago, I was doing a bunch of like meaty things, like events where I'm like showing up at public schools to give motivational speeches, flipping cars and shit. And TV producers ended up reading about me in a newspaper and I ended up getting a reality TV show for a full season flying all over. Like wild shit happens. It just like mm. you said, the TV producer, like the people that listen and um, find you, you have no, it'll freak you out. Yeah. You want to be yourself, but you never know who's listening. Just like that door open for Omar. Cause someone's listening to the podcast. It knows yep. you guys. Um, yeah, man, it's, it's wild how life works like that. That's what I tell people. Like, you got to do things. Throw yourself out there. Yeah, and like, it, how long ago was it that you saw Rory's homemade pornography and you thought, you know what, that guy <laughs> would be a fantastic 
person to have on the podcast as a guest host and here he is today so i think yeah. this i have been trying to get that removed from Pornhub for like six years <laughs> now like yeah I they're terrible know. about that i tell you what i've had them on customer service calls only to find out they don't even have a customer service and i was like who was i talking to for two hours right and then you got a bill mm. for that call You're like oh, i did <laughs> i did well, did you have to send it, like it confirmation was photos or something what happened to those like, uh, they asked for pictures of me oddly enough so i, I really think i got duped on that one and my credit card information, oddest customer service call ever had. <laughs> Very strange. Very strange. Yeah, no, Rory's, uh, he showed a lot of gumption in those videos, and I like the quality. He had a work ethic to him. Mm. Uh, so we brought him in, and he's worked out so far. But, uh, yeah, man, I mean, uh, and, and I was, uh, first time we met, was it 2018 IPF World Championships? It was actually Belarus, which was Was it Belarus? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there with Bryce. That was. That's right. The Battle of the 105s. Yeah, that was a good, Belarus was, well, first it was Belarus and we all know there was like some tragic stuff that happened around that year. So that was wild. Um, But yeah, it was, it was amazing. Uh, You know, I believe it was, uh, (coughs) excuse me, was it Garrett Blevins and I'm trying to think who who were the top five that that year. Screamer. Yeah. Screamer, I think was fifth. Yep. Um, Was he fourth? He might have been fourth. I'm all I know is Bryce was second. That that's all that matters to me. And I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's bad. Yeah, I don't remember who won, but you know that person doesn't count anyway. No, obviously Chris Christoph with Becky won. Bryce placed second. I think Garrett Blevins was third, and then I know Screamer was either fourth or fifth. If Screamer, my man, if I'm if I'm giving you the unfair fourth, that is my apologies. But that was actually um, a really cool year because right after um, Belarus they held the first European powerlifting conference. So a lot of us screamer, myself, Bryce, Mike T, we all just did a little hop, skip and a jump over to Ireland. And we mm-hmm. had a two day conference, which was just awesome. That was the first time I'd gotten to uh, hang out in like an extended format like that with, uh, with screamer and Mike T, Mike T I'd met previously. I'd gone to some of his conferences and we've always had a very collegial relationship. Um, and he influenced my, my PhD to a great degree. I basically did my PhD on like, the RPE based system. But anyway, we hit it off. That was a fantastic time. That little, that little period going right from, from world still being on the high, then going right to the EPC and talking about, you know, like the science and, and, and practice of powerlifting. That was, a, that was a really, really fun trip. Isn't it wild? Um, I, I mean, obviously I had my, my tea on the podcast before and it's crazy. I remember I was reading a book. I came across, like it was, came out in like, like 80s or something, maybe 90s tops, early 90s. And um, it was talking about RPE based, how it started with uh, endurance athletes. I don't know if it's cycling or endurance runners. And they were like realizing to get the most out of people, like you, you can't, you're overcooking. So they started pulling it back a little. They were using like uh, beats per minute and stuff like that to judge by how many more miles, et cetera, to, do, to be using it. And it's wild that like, so previously we had percentage base, obviously, but Mike T is like, I wonder if there's instead of like essentially a prescribed amount based off of percentage base, if we can, if we're experiencing the same thing and it's cool that he actually brought it over from another sport and be like, let's use reps, you know, instead of, you know, beats per minute or miles or whatever. And he can like put that in there and be like, I fucking changed the game with something like that. Like that's like a, to be able to walk away from the game when you're done and be like, that's what I left him in a game. I'm the, the father of RPE and powerlifting. Yeah. I mean, 
Mike is such an iconoclast. He thinks so differently than, than, than most people. Like he can identify problems and then figure out creative solutions to them that most people just would not come up with. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that I've, I've always like noticed him in the space. I remember I'm talking like 2011, I had printed out like maybe 10 pages of his posts on a forum that I was just reading through. Um, so yeah, I, I've said this to him before. It makes him very uncomfortable, which I love. Um, and, uh, but yeah, like just because I think there's an element to his thinking process that I, that I, that I found like there's something there I can learn from. And, you know, like, I think like he has like a, an engineering background in, 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 in the air force. And then, you know, he started powerlifting when he was like, like 14. So mm-hmm. he's, you know, he, he's this really interesting, um, convergence of a lot of different factors. And I think, and he's also just a great guy and he generally wants to like help people, but he's, he's, he like his brain works in systems mm-hmm. like in, uh, which like, I think he starts to develop systems to solve problems right when he starts to think about how do I, you know, what is the problem? Um, and that's, that's not the way my brain works. I kind of have to, I think about it from like a big picture, like, what are we even talking about? Let me learn everything that, that exists in and around it. And then, okay, let's get to a specific answer to this part of it. Um, which is probably heavily influenced by being involved in, in research and academia. Um, and, and I, I think it's just been a really, it's been a privilege, I'll be honest, to be exposed to that type of thinking and to call him a colleague because it's made me better in certain ways for sure. It's um, I, I totally get what you mean where sometimes breaking things down in the systems makes it easier. Like you're obviously a smart guy. And for me, sometimes to be able to digest and keep myself with so many irons in the fire, so to speak, I need systems to keep me going forward. Otherwise it's not going to work for me. So I kind of get where he might need that, you know, to keep things going forward. Um, when you did, he also has like 14 children. I mean, so so the fact that he is, Oh my God. Mike has how many wives? (laughs) Yes. One wife. No. And they are, yes. Talk about (laughs) one, one wife that I am aware of that I find an NDA to talk about, but no, man, he has like, he has like five pairs of twins and, and uh, an (laughs) army army of children. It's amazing that he has time to do anything, which makes it all even that much more impressive. That is that. So is that genetics? Is that cloning or what's your, what's your thoughts on that? further research on he just has a really happy relationship with his wife (laughs) (laughs) some experimental well he was in the military and you know they're all jack children Mm. but uh when you started getting in the game like early days because because you are you've been around for a long time doing this how was well first off you got into bodybuilding and i know is that right so you know believe it or not you know i i think because 3d muscle journey which uh, is, is where I've been most associated. And I'm, you know, obviously I don't have any clothing besides that, as you can see from this podcast, uh, uh it doesn't make much money, but it does keep me in clothing, which everyone appreciates. Um, <laughs> so you're like, you're like, I think we need hoodies. They're like, I think it's winter. And that's why you're doing this. You're, you're rolling out for every season. It's your like, I'm like, no, no, this, this is totally independent of that. And you're like, wait a minute. It's not even winter here. It's just winter in, in the Southern hemisphere where you're at. And I'm like, be quiet. I need clothes. Uh, <laughs> That's right. No, but uh, so I think because 3D Muscle Journey is primarily, um, you know, about about bodybuilding, that is probably what I'm most well known for. Um, and let's be honest, like I'm a very mediocre powerlifter and I'm like uh, a slightly better than mediocre bodybuilder. So I think that's fair enough. 
Um, but the first uh, like iron game, quote unquote competition I did was a unsanctioned push pull in 06 at my, at the YMCA where I was a personal trainer at, that was my first personal training job in 06, uh, in, in Augusta, Georgia, back when my wife was still stationed there, I had just gotten out of the air force and I'd started a new career. So when I first started lifting, I was just interested in both getting huge and as strong as possible. So they were always this kind of combined thing for me. And then because I have a very obsessive personality and I want to you know, maximize anything I'm interested in, it was not that long before I did my first um, bodybuilding season in 07. And I have pretty much competed in at least one powerlifting meet every year from 2006 till now, except for taking a little bit of time off when I had uh, hip injury and hip surgery. And then um, obviously a little bit of time off for COVID, um, not as much as you'd think. But uh, yeah, I think I've done something like just under 20 powerlifting meets over the years. And then I think uh, five weightlifting meets, um, a couple of little strongman type things. And then I've done three bodybuilding seasons and across them I've done 10, 10 shows or something like that. So I've been, oh, wow. I'm still a pretty active athlete, you know? So yeah. It, it uh, like quote unquote athlete. Yeah. Well, hey, um, it, it absolutely murders your body doing natty bodybuilding. Does it not? I've had, I had a, like, I haven't done it myself, but I have some buddies who have done it and they tell me my friend, you're going to, if you're going to do it natty, it will, I remember afterwards, like he did extremely well at a local show. And, um, I was like, how'd it go? He's like, did amazing, blah, blah. How you feel? And he's like, did some damage. <laughs> he's like, did <laughs> It's damage. It's going to take a little while because he looked like so fucking skinny, but um, mm. with his shirt off diced on stage with the lighting, he's diced and he looks amazing. But that's like natural bodybuilding isn't going to be the same as, you know, what you might be used to when you see guys who are like, oh, whatever the hell they want to be. Yeah. Yeah. So like the guys who are huge and get accused of being fake natties because they're like the top um, natural bodybuilder, like, 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 the, you know, the equivalent of all the top USAPL lifters who on, on the internet, of course, are all on a, a ton of gear. Um, it's the thing is, is like what you get out of doping for strength is very obvious and apparent. And, you know, like if you, there's been some decent estimations that if you stay in the same weight class, which is a big caveat, you might boost your strength, you know, 10% or something like that. Obviously putting on a crap ton of muscle typically won't keep you in the same weight class. And then, you know, we see the ceiling go up and, you know, like, I think there's been enough examples of people who started out in IPF affiliates who were, you know, suspect and accused, but then they switched over and you're like, oh, like, that's what happens when you take gear. You did just <laughs> eight, add 90 kilos to your total, um, you know, but we've seen the same thing in natural bodybuilding. And so, I, you know, I've seen people who are like, you know, five, nine, 190 on stage and they're like, no way that is just cheating, you know, and then they go on and after a good time spent, you know, taking the extra, the extra creatine, um, they get yeah, gigantic. Supplements. Yeah. So, the, and, and that's not to say that there aren't, of course, some people who cheat in the IPF or there aren't some people who cheat in natural bodybuilding, but the, I think the limitations of how much you can cheat and also the perception of how ubiquitous cheating is on the internet makes it seem like half of people are cheating. And I think it's actually like, five percent just having been in and around the sport for so long but anyway to give you an example you guys are familiar with sean clarita 
I'm not big into bodybuilding. Okay. So he, he just won the under 212 uh, Olympia. Okay. okay. So he's, <laughs> he's like five, two, and he's 180 pounds on stage almost. Oh, wow. So he, and he is just, he has an incredible physique. He competed around 130 pounds when he was a natural bodybuilder and he was winning the lightweight WNBF championship. Um, okay. Here's one you guys probably heard of Kai Green. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I so also, back, going back to the video earlier, we we're talking about with the credit card. Yeah. I, I mean, so, uh, we'll, I, I, we're, we're going to, we're going to leave that discussion out of this just, okay, just sure. to respect the yeah, man, sure. you know, I mean, he, he, everyone, everyone has the, the launching point for their career. Hey, his might've, his might've hindered him a little bit. Hey, his his might've left a little bit of a sour taste in the mouth of the judges. Oh, wow. <laughs> well done, sir. Oh, thank you. But anyway, so Kai Green, at the age of like 18 and 19, he was winning pro titles as a natural bodybuilder, and he was around 190 pounds. And then he went on to compete in some of the drug-tested shows in the, the NPC circuit, what used, to, what, what used to be called NPC Team Universe is actually where it's got his pro card. And then all of a sudden, he was like, all right, I'm going for the Olympia, and he gained like 60 pounds mm. on top of that. So the differences between um, fully, fully enhanced uh, bodybuilding and natural bodybuilding are far more pronounced than say drug tested and undrug tested strength sport. Um, because you don't necessarily have to produce force with these massive muscles. You just have to carry them around on stage. Um, so I think there, there's a little less requirement for transfer, you know, like you take a bunch of gear and you're a basketball player, your free throws probably aren't going to improve. Right. Mm-hmm. You take a bunch of gear and you're a shot putter. You're probably going to throw the thing further. You know, you take a bunch of gear and you seem to slowly pick up something off the ground. You're going to lift more. You take a bunch of gear and you just need to look like you can pick a bunch of shit off the ground. You're going to look like it, whether or not you can or not. So arguably uh, bodybuilding is one of the most aided by performance enhancing drugs uh, in terms of the actual outcome. So the delineation is quite important um, because like I said, you know, some, okay, we'll use myself as an example. I am a a low tier pro. Um, And so I have not even yet competed at the pro level and I'm trying to now get a pro card in a, the most competitive organization, my pro cards in the smaller one. Um, and I get on stage at six foot at 180 pounds. The really, really, really good dudes uh, who are six foot, they're competing at like 200 to 10. So that's probably just not in the cards for me, but that's just to give you an idea of like, who are the, you know, the genetic freaks in natural bodybuilding, where are they at? And of course, if they were to, and then if you look at the guys who are six foot in like the IFBB Olympia qualifying, like we're talking like, you know, big Ramey, I think he's actually five eleven, but he's a good example of someone who's, you know, close to like 300 pounds on stage. Like there's a big oh, difference. My goodness. Yeah. That's a stitch of a difference, sir. Um, he's a big the, guy. The, 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 oh, oh, one more thing I wanted to say, by the way, Ryan, is yeah. the, the interesting perception that you said of like, you know, natural bodybuilding will destroy your body. It almost makes it sound like being enhanced won't. Um, <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm pro drugs, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I would put forth that there are most of the, the, the ways that natural bodybuilding beats you up are transient um, if you do things right. And once you recover from being semi-starved, because it's basically a competitive starvation competition with who can maintain the most amount of muscle by lifting weights and, right. and not, not binge eating. It's, it's beautiful. I don't know why everyone doesn't do it. Um, <laughs> and it's still that in the enhanced strengths, but just also a whole lot of drugs. Um, but not everyone's on a whole lot of drugs. Some people are just on a some bit of drugs at, at lower levels. Yeah. And you could probably make the argument that if you were just trying to offset 
the, the hormonal changes of extreme dieting that maybe the process would not be as, as hard. It wouldn't feel as difficult and you wouldn't lose as much muscle, et cetera. Um, but ultimately when we're talking about like the chemical warfare of, you know, being six foot, 300 pounds, those yeah. guys are definitely potentially dropping a decade off their life for that title. And, and I'm not judging, I'm just saying, you know, respect, but that's, that's not the, the, the direction that I want to go for, for me personally. And I think that's what my buddy was alluding to is, um, yeah, for sure. There's levels to how much drugs you want to take, but if you were to supplement, like when you're how much muscle, because he was so lean and how much Mm. muscle mass he probably lost as well to get that lean. And then, um, like you were kind of alluding to in terms of what that might do to your hormones being that lean and, and, uh, the food intake, et cetera. But if you could offset to a degree, even, so maybe there's even like levels to how much gear you use and how much like maybe you know is there kind of some kind of to an extent there's like all right there's like natty and then there's natty and then there's and then there's you know ifbb pro whatever i think maybe a better way to put it is not how how much natty you're losing but how much enhanced you are is probably a better yeah, framing yeah, sure well so like yeah. at, at one end we have like completely natty, never taken drugs. We've got like guys who have dabbled in some some sums and maybe a test cycle. And then you got the duffin limit right up on the right hand side. There, there you go. Oh, my man knows about the duffin limit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, we actually had some pretty uh, pretty good conversations about this. We had um, uh, Mike Isretel and the, the late great John Meadows who talked about this on Iron Culture way back in the beginning. If if you guys ever want to listen to that. I think it was, it was really enlightening because like bodybuilding is, it does have a bunch of little tiny niches and subgroups and, and, and sub tribes, if you will. Um, but I know a ton of guys and, and gals on the, on the enhanced side, some of them are my friends and they're happy to speak to me candidly about it. So I don't have any personal experience with it. And I'm definitely not like in, in that culture, but essentially the, the quote unquote right way to do it is to take the least amount you need to keep progressing at the level of competition you're at. Um, the way you don't want to do it is just hop on everything immediately and try to make gains as fast as you can. And there's actually been some prominent deaths of people who took that approach in, in recent years, unfortunately. It's very well known for, for that approach, actually. And um, so like when way back in the day, I think when I was first online, I, I had no exposure to this world. We're talking 2008 or something like that. I remember on the bodybuilding.com forums, there was this guy who was looked amazing and he was placing top five in NPC nationals. And I want to say like middleweights or lightweights. And uh, he was like, I'm going to retire. And I, and I didn't understand. I was like, bro, you're nearly at the point where you're knocking on a pro card, like top five NPC nationals. That's crazy. If you win your, your class of NPC nationals, you get a pro card. And he was like, well, I, you know, it's just something that I'm not willing to do. And, you know, I can't afford it. And I kept this like, what is it? The travels, the feel like I didn't, I didn't understand it. Cause in my mind, it wasn't that I thought he was natty. I wasn't naive. It was that I kind of just thought like there was two things. There was, you know, the people who were natty and then there's everybody else. And it's all the same. And he was like, he was like, I'm, He's like, let me just be frank with you. I am not comfortable doing anything more than I currently am. And for me to be competitive and to crack into the top three or even to get my pro card, it would put me in a financial and health position that I'm not willing to do. And I was like, oh, like it just kind of made me realize that the Mm. difference between a national level competitor who has the ability to go further, like he has the genetics, which really just means body structure. Like, let's be honest, bodybuilding is a, it's a dog show, you know, (laughs) like it's, you know, at the highest level, 
90% of the guys are between, you know, five, four to five, eight, and they all have rib cages, the size of the boat and, you know, waist, <laughs> the size of, of, of like, you know, your like a thumb ring and, yeah. and clavicles that, that extend out to the sides and their, their lats and certain their glutes and their glutes and certain their hammies. And it's silly. Right. So anyway, if you have that structure, you just have to be willing to pile a lot of meat on top of it. And you have to have a body that happens to respond well to the drugs and also have a low amount of side effects and some way to afford all that stuff. And that's kind of wild. Cause so another story time. Now we'll go yeah, to yeah. <coughs> fast forward to 2010 or 11. I can't, I think it was 10. And we had just started 3d muscle journey. We had just started coaching. I was a young, fresh eyed bachelor student who, you know, I had a CPT and some other certifications after my name. And I had, I've had done my first season of bodybuilding and I wanted to help people get shredded. And I thought natural bodybuilding was awesome. And I was talking to this guy who also had placed top five, but in the heavyweights of NPC nationals. And he was at a local gym in California where I, where I used to live at the time. I don't want to disclose who he is, but, um, but in, in the like early two thousands, he placed top five. So we're talking like Troy Al was like flex Wheeler, all these really, really good bodybuilders back in the day. Uh, who he was going up against. And um, he was telling me that, yeah, he had a coach and he named this pretty prominent coach at the time. And I was like, I just had a curiosity. How much do they charge on that side of the sport? Cause we charge like, and I told him or like really measly charge for like training and nutrition. That was like a hundred dollars a month or something like that at the time. And he was like, yeah, typically between like one to two grand. And I was like, what per year? And he was like, no, no, no per month. And I was like, I don't understand. And he was like, He's like, Eric, they, they don't just write my training and nutrition. They're my source. And I was like, oh, I see. I see. That's, that's your drug bill. Okay. Uh... And I just, so over the years, I've come to understand that the, the, the worlds are quite different in pretty substantial ways. And when you're at the level where you're trying to win the like heavyweight or super heavyweight title at, at NPC Nationals, um, let's just say you're not worried about whether or not your beta alanine is sufficiently dosed in your pre. <laughs> You know, it's, um, I've had, you know, I, I don't know how many untested lifters on here and a lot of them come on and say straight up, if I got any advice for anybody, it's don't start using. And mm. got, even guys outspoken, like Garrett fear is like, um, I'll tell you right now, like my, he's like, my bed to an extent has been, has been laid. I went down this path and it is what it is, but he's like, if I could start all over again, I, I would just not use and go the IPF route, USP, whatever the tested route. Mm. Right? Um, and a lot of guys, big dudes, Brendan Allen, big dudes, burly dudes, whatever. He's like, um, and he's always jokester, whatever the hell, right. Hard to pin him in down and get a, a straight answer from. And he's like, he was dead ass serious. And he's like, yeah, but honestly, I would tell people don't, don't start. Cause once you start, you know, if you stop, like, like first off, and, and you'll know better if, if you've, you know, you've got people close to you that have gone this route, but everything shuts down, hormones shut down. Your testosterone could be off. And if your testosterone is straight up off, what that would feel like you were on the vert, you could be on the verge of suicide. You can be like, that is you, that is your male hormone. That is what makes you, you. And when it comes back on can be scary because who knows, maybe quick, maybe slow, maybe it doesn't all come back on. Maybe there's, maybe you're no longer going to be able to have children, whatever the shit, there's consequences, you know, let alone if you're a woman and you, mm. you know, we're usually 17 times at testosterone naturally, and then are around there, whatever. And uh, if you're a woman and you're loading up, yeah, things will change and you stop. And it's like, 
either when you first stop, it can be like for really real hell, like for like in terms of anxiety, depression, things that'll happen to you. And then what happens afterwards, you don't know if you're going to be the same person. Exactly. You're you, but there's no guarantee. No one could be like, you'll be right back to where you were. No one can necessarily say that it is a major, major decision that Mm. if you're 18, 19, you're just like, fuck it, let's rock and roll. And you don't take that. And where you said the advice of other people was like, you just say fucking rock and roll. That's the more likelihood of not turning back around to being you. You just add a little bit here and there and inch your way up a lot easier to be like suffering. Some weird things are happening. You start backing off and more than likely you could even out like that's, there's like a Oscar risk reward like that. That's people don't talk about how dangerous it could be. Yeah. And I've, I've, unfortunately, sorry, go ahead, Roy. I was, I was just going to say men in particular, uh, women as well, but men, men more so are really bad at assessing long-term risks as well, um, especially up until about the age of 25 or so, like up until the age of 25 or so, just the, um, the I forgot the name of the, the bias, but basically things, short-term things are way more real than long-term things. And you've got to live in this body for hopefully a really long time. Um, so like if you're 16 to 25 and, and you're thinking about it, like your brain is still not developing, like you're is, is still developing, your hormones are still, uh, not yet in their like final sort of adult levels. You're, you're really not equipped to be making that decision for your 50, 60, 70 year old self when you're only, you know, in that age range. Yeah. The old, the old recency bias. Um, uh, that's the one. Thank you. I got you. Yeah, the uh, it's 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 a tough one for sure because I think there's there's more and more pressure to look a certain way that it's driven by drug fueled bodies and and more importantly sometimes just just straight up photo editing <laughs> like you know like like you can take as much much trend as you want you're unless unless you've got someone to walk around with you like like you know editing every time you take a picture you you, you can't look that way and and also I think lighting. Absolutely, tons of stuff, right? And and there's a lot of things that are just not emphasized in the kind of the quote unquote non-competitive mainstream bodybuilding uh, perception. Like it, it is more about what you get out of it. Like what can this do for me? Like what has bodybuilding done for me lately? Rather than this is a tool for personal growth. Uh, this is a way for me to express myself. You know, this is this is a way to have a continual progressive healthy goal. You know, so I think it's very easy to identify with what can I extract from this? And if it's not optimal and what if my genetics are you know shitty? And then there's all the social comparisons of like, I'm not even really worried about that. I put on 20 pounds and I look totally different. All my friends think it's awesome, but I don't look like, you know, the 15 influencers I follow. So I think it's, you get the social pressures, which young people are because they're trying to figure out who they are, are more susceptible to in combination with what Rory was talking about. And you get a lot of people in a position where they're trying to make a rational decision when they're not equipped to do so and they're not being fed accurate information. So it, it's, it is a little scary, you know, for me, I don't know what it would be like if I was born in, you know, 2010 and I was 20, no, I don't want to be 12. Like that's bad math. If I was born in 2000 and I was, I don't know what year it is. And I was 22 instead of turning 39 next month, you know, I was born before the, the pressures of social media. And even, I think anyone would be lying if they're really heavily involved in strength and physique sport, if they hadn't considered like, Oh, I wonder what, about the enhanced route. And for me, I was, I'm very thankful that I had the self-awareness to go, you know why this isn't for me. It's not a moral obligation. I'm not even that concerned about the health consequences. Cause right now I think I would do it 
you know, in a conservative manner. But then I realized like, hold on, w- would you though, Eric, like you're, you're a competitive bodybuilder and you're incredibly rational, like science interested person. So when you're not making progress and you think you're doing everything you can in the gym, in the kitchen, what, you're not just going to up the dose and rationalize that. And like, where does that slippery slope go? So for me, it took going to my first natural bodybuilding show to be a spectator, which was, I think, you know, 2005. And just to be impressed by the physiques and just see that, Hey, there's an option here. You know, I have a competitive pathway and I think that is just a really positive thing because then I could draw a line in the sand and go, you know what? I know my personality and I would like to just shut that door. So I I can just focus on, you know, the things that are considered quote unquote fair play here. Um, and, and that's not a moral argument. That's not a perfect argument. People be like, well, yeah, well, how natural is taking creatine? Like there's so many, you know, bullshit YouTube comment types of things someone could say to that. But I would just put forth that for me to have an external goal, a competitive drive, and also to know myself and know that I, I will push things to the limit, um, that there are some things that I don't want to push to the limit and to save me for myself. And that's why I made the decision to to promote and like be pro, but pro, pro, pro drug free bodybuilding, but not anti enhanced bodybuilding. And, uh, and that's kind of what I, why I do what I do. Why I'm like a science communicator for this stuff is just to give people sustainable options. So where they can, cause let's, let's, you know, no, no bones about it. What we do, they're extreme sports, whether you're in the IPF or whether you're in the WNBF or whether you're in, uh, you know, in the untested ranks or, or the, the IFBB, the, it's, it's extreme. And most of us, once you really fall in love and you're bit by the iron bug, if we really look at inward and ask ourselves, we want to keep doing this at the highest level we can for the longest time possible. And I think a lot of the decisions we make don't actually consider that. So what I do is I try to help people shift their perspectives towards sustainability in their career. And being able to do this, you know, lifting thing on their own terms for as long as possible. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's, that's my angle. That's my gig, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, each their own. No, I mean, so a couple of things I, I 100% agree. First off, the person who's like, um, is creating fully natty. Here's the thing. There's nothing, let's use the rock. Okay. There's nothing amoral against him using testosterone or whatever the shit there's no, you could do whatever the hell you want with your body who gives a shit what anyone else does with their body you just have to play by the rules you sign up for then it becomes a moral conflict if you're cheating that's it we all know this right like who what do i give a shit if my next neighbor gases up doesn't if he drinks doesn't drink if he's a vegan eats meat i, I know no difference doesn't affect me we sign up for a competition i'm allowed to use creatine that's it man this is pretty easy you know what I mean? When people say that, so it's not even that it's just whatever. And then in terms of, um, you know, doubling back a stitch about people and what they're willing to do and you closing that door and, and you saying, you know, it's probably a good idea. I close that door. Look at the sports illustrated did super famous article. Now it's a little old, but I'm sure it still stands. They asked athletes, if mm. you could take a drug and you would become an Olympic champion within the next four years, but you died within the four years after that would you do it you're guaranteed a gold but you're guaranteed to die within four years after that there's not a date you're going to take out back and get shot but you know your life once you take that gold before the next olympics comes around you're not going to be around and um a remarkably high amount said yeah i take that you know i can't remember off the top of my head but there yes 
Yeah. Importantly, those those were uh, Olympians who they were asked. Olympians they asked. Yeah. And, and and can I also say that's part of the um, your coaching service? You ask everybody. That's a commitment you want to see from your athletes. If they yeah, say, yeah, yeah. if they say no, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, we just shame them and we post it online. Right. No, I'm just kidding. You want to be a winner? <laughs> no. You're a loser. <laughs> yeah, no. So the no, no, hundred percent. And I think I I do wonder how that culturally changes over time and how it varies, you know, country to country. I've definitely seen different attitudes in athletes in New Zealand than the US, even at the highest level, which I find really, really interesting. And mm. I've seen different attitudes in different sports. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Like, like what are some of these differences? So I've had the, the pleasure. So, you know, for, for, for those who don't know, like I've got this whole 3D muscle journey thing, but I also have the privilege of working at AUT Millennium, which is the national uh, training center for sports, uh, for, excuse me, for HPSNZ, High Performance Sport New Zealand, which is kind of the equivalent. It's like your AIS in Australia, you know, Australian Institute of Sport or EIS in, in England. I think the closest thing we got to that in the U.S. would be like uh, USOC out in, uh, in Colorado. But anyway, it's a government agency that is about supporting high-performance sport. So there's funding that goes to strength conditioning, uh, physios, nutritionists, et cetera, that all are, are, are based upon, you know, where can we get more medals, you know? So it's a, mm. it's a very performance-driven organization. Um, however, the individuals in the organization absolutely think about athlete welfare, mental health, long-term athlete development, um, heavily academically influenced. And the athletes themselves are also generally like don't get me wrong they want to win but they seem to have a little more balance in their perspective on average and i'm not going to make you know i'm not saying there there aren't you know your archetypal like when it all costs like you know athletes in new zealand of course there are mm-hmm. um but just having been in and around sport in the u.s and then having been in and around sport in new zealand you you typically have people who have a little more of a holistic perspective and they aren't, you know, completely wrapped up in a way that is very like dog eat dog kind of mentality. Um, and it's, it's interesting. You even see this in powerlifting, like, and I'm going to, I'm going to catch some shade and I'm going to be talking some shit about my homies now for a second, That's okay. but like, like I've had Ellis McLean and I've had Taylor Atwood on iron culture. And those are my boys. Like I've hung out with them afterwards. We've talked, but, and it's probably just because of their, their background in, in team sport but they make powerlifting into a combat sport when it has, does not need to be like, you know, like, <laughs> like no one's going to come up and kick you in the knee while you're squatting. There's no defense. There's no offense. You just go there and you put up the biggest number you can. But I, I, I love ta- Taylor. I love you, bro. You're the best powerlifter on the planet, but I had to smile when, when I hear you talking about there's too much friendship and, and powerlifting. We, we need rivalries. We need to hype this up. This is a big deal, folks. And like, you know, don't get me wrong. Like I, whatever you, whatever an athlete needs to do to go there, to get in the performance of arousal and compete is amazing. And I think they should do it. And I would never tell, you know, Taylor to change or LS to change or anything like that. I love these guys. And I know that's what they need to do to bring their A game and their world champions. Like who, who am I to say? And it's not a knock. I am just saying that I think, just so everyone else out there knows at all levels of powerlifting or even at world champions. I've talked to many world champions who really don't care what someone else is doing. They're just there to improve their lifts and they happen to be stronger than everybody, you know? And, and so there are other pathways. I think the only fallacy that I try to combat sometimes 
when I, when I speak to, uh, you know, like younger lifters and upcoming lifters and people who want to be really, really good, which is, you know, many power lifters, at least if they're competing is that, you know, don't, don't think that you need the quote unquote athletes mentality because that athletes mentality is not that ubiquitous. You know, it's, it's not, that, that's not the only way to do it. Like not everyone is, is crying Jordan, you know, like there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of ways to get there. And I've actually seen some really interesting like published studies where they've interviewed like a bunch of world champions. Um, and especially when you're talking about individual sport, they tend to have a little more balanced of a perspective than you would think, but there's obviously cultural biases. Like I've, I think, uh, I think, I think American athletes on average, not to a huge extent, of course, but are, are going to have a little more of that kind of competitive uh, nature where they almost see it as like a, a zero sum game. But there's like there's no reason that that has to be the case. Like obviously someone has to win, someone has to lose. But all you can do is show up and put up the biggest total. That like that's pretty much it, you know. Mm. So there's a bit of a um, self selection bias in what we see out of people, right? Like the people that yes. we hear going, "I have to be the best," you know, like blah blah blah. Like those people make the best sound bites. They go, they mm. make the best interviews. Like they make the most compelling thing to watch and listen to, which means when we're looking at athletes, like we probably see a disproportionate number of those people when we've also got, uh, you know, Evie Corrigan's and, you know, whoever else who are just like, I'm, I'm going to do my best on the day. And if it's enough, that's cool. And if it's not enough, like I'm having fun. So, and like those, those plenty of those people exist as well. Yeah. I don't know if you guys listen to, and you're going to have to say yes, just out of a, a sheer obligation of, of personal pressure. Now uh, the, I, I had an episode and I'm so appreciative that Ashton said yes to this, but shortly after um, last nationals where, where Ashton, uh, you know, beat Bryce and that was an awesome performance on both their parts. We had them both on iron culture to talk about exactly this, like, like the mentality, you know, and in Bryce and Ashton are both really introspective, thoughtful, emotionally intelligent dudes with two very different perspectives who are both very open-minded to other perspectives. And it was just, it was one of my favorite conversations. I know it's one of the more niche episodes on, on iron culture, but for those who are interested in this topic specifically, it was really, really cool. And I also really appreciate Bryce's perspective because he coaches so many athletes. He's, he's, he's not only, you know, a world champion and a multi-time national champion, but he has helped people at all levels of powerlifting. And, and he has a, he, he's had to, really reason his way through this and figure out a sustainable mentality. And, you know, like when does he need to go off social media? You know, when does he view someone as like the enemy versus just, Hey, we're all in this together, you know, the rising tide of soul ships, et cetera. And, you know, he, he's definitely struggled with the whole, like, I want to win. And, and the other people I have to you know, like not pay attention to or actively see as the enemy versus I'd like to make a post that helps the whole powerlifting community about sports psychology, <laughs> you know, like, so he has to carry that dichotomy as, as a championship, as a, as a world champion. And it's something that, um, really only very high level lifters have to think about, you know, like it's easy to sit here as Eric Helms with like a six thirty total at 93 <laughs> and, and be like, I don't know why you're so worried about like competing, you know, and beating other people, like, you know, like, okay, I've got 250 kilos before I, I even have to deal with that, you know? So with that said, I have been, a, a coach for people who have been in that same position, but that gives me a level of uh, remove, like it gives me a step back to some degree of not being like actually in the arena to the same degree. But, but anyway, I, I also know I have had that mentality. I remember very early on in my career when I was a young man, I was like, I don't even know if I would lift if I didn't 
if I didn't think I could become Mr. Natural Olympia. And now I have a, like a very different perspective. Like I just want to become the best version of me I can possibly be. And it would be interesting to see where, I, where the chips fall when I get in the arena. Mm. Um, so, so yeah. And, and, you know, I'm also, you know, an, an older athlete, if you will, uh, in, in the grand scheme compared to some of the, the young bucks who are, um, you know, winning, winning world titles. So anyway, those are my thoughts on that. Well, um, it's interesting you bring up Bryce because I've had Bryce on here uh, a bunch of times and, and, and Lane Norton on here and Bryce <laughs> talked about um, specific, you might know like the exact these stories, but Bryce and Lane both talked about um, Bryce said, actually Lane was a little taken back when I told him, you know what Bryce said? He said they were at a competition back in the day. They were like rivals at the national level. And um, Bryce said Lane's intensity in self-confidence the way he carried himself was super intimidating to the point where he said at one point he was he's like like kind of like a, a break you know he like broke down mentally and was like fucking you know even though it's just weightlifting like you said like you mm. no matter what lane does you will have your time on that platform and it's weird that we can get in our own heads and make it this means this this means that etc and blow things up and then it's it's super interesting how obviously we know everything Bryce ended up doing. He ended up yep. like winning national titles, world titles, and in heavily hyped showdowns. So in terms of handling the pressure, initially couldn't later on found himself in the battle of the 105s, where you said 2017 and 18, those back to back were extremely heavily hyped. In 2017, he lost to Verzbecki. And in the rematch, he was going against a guy that, again, extremely hyped, and he'd already lost to. All the cards would have been there for, okay, well, you've reached your measure. This guy's better than you. It's heavily hyped. If he stayed the 2012 or 13 or whatever Bryce, um, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have turned out the way it did. And you remember, you were there. And, it, it, you know, there's some people say, like, sports don't build character. They reveal it. I think that's bullshit to an extent. Mm. You can reveal it in that game, in that particular game. We're going to see when fatigue kicks in, when anxiety kicks in. Now I'll see. But you can learn from that. And um, I've had uh, Jennifer Milliken on, and she talked about it as well. She became a world champion. And she was like, you know, there was a time in my life where for the longest time, if the going got tough, I would almost tell myself, kind of like you guys were saying earlier, when athletes come on in those sound bites, I'll fucking die for this, you know, seven days a week and whatever. And she would be like, like, I'm not built like that. I don't want it like that. So you almost tell yourself, I'm, I'm not that. So then she said, when the going got tough, I almost had that in the back of my head. So when the going got tough, and if I looked across the way and I told myself, that's you, but that's not me, then I would almost start conceding before and then she said at a certain point, she just said, you know, I'm going to stop giving up on myself like that. And she just turned it. She goes, maybe I'm not built like that, but I'm also not soft either. And she's like, I think I want this pretty bad too. And then she said, when she turned that corner, one IPF worlds, one best lifter at IPF worlds, things started turning around. And like, we had that discussion about how you can build mental fortitude. You can get better and stronger mentally. Some people think like, you're a coward you're a coward you quit now you'll always quit it becomes a habit sometimes sometimes that fucking shame you'll never you, you'll be like i never want to feel like that again you know you just have to find yourself um, yeah I, I always find it very strange 
when like 90% of people who are sports commentators or think about sports or talk about it, they are, they're like almost philosophically aligned with the idea that we can become greater, right? That's, that's the basic ethos of sport, right? Mm. The, the Rocky montage is, is in our blood, you know, uh, you know, he's, he was, he was in, in the snow, well, Drago had the, in the sports science and the gear, like you, you, you can overcome odds, you can face adversity, you can improve. But then sometimes for certain mental qualities, it's like, nope, that's a fixed mindset. This person can never be different. They don't have quote unquote it, says an armchair commentator who couldn't even tell you what it is if you, if you asked. But, um, but yeah, it, it's an incredibly ironic belief to carry in the space of sport where the entire ethos is based around being able to improve and overcome and become something more than you were uh, and rise to the occasion. I think a lot of people just think that rising to the occasion always does have to look like that, that Rocky montage or, you know, honestly, Rocky's not even a good example because if you look at the Rocky movies over time, he goes through some pretty big shifts. Like he thinks he's all about it. And he, he just wants to be respected, you know, and the first one doesn't win. And then now he's like, Oh, I'm the champ. And he gets a little too big for his britches and then clubber Lang whoops his ass. And then he comes back and then he has to do something for the community. You know, it's, it's kind of weird cold war propaganda, but he's also, you know, helping out his friend who died, you know, so he comes all the way full circle and, and does it for a greater purpose. But anyway, um, I clearly uh, I've seen those movies too many times. Dude, I love it. You got to. You got to. Yeah. Like I said, it's it's in the DNA of any person who is really interested in, in, in sports and competition. So the idea that that, uh, that there are certain athletes who just don't have that mental toughness, like it can't be changed, I think is is uh, I don't know. It's just a wild belief. I'm not even going to criticize it. I just don't think it makes any sense if if you're if we're talking about humans in sport, you know. So, yeah, people people don't remember. Like I I think I can't remember if you were commentating uh, Bryce's session because I did watch it back. But the the language used for Bryce in 2018. At Calgary was Fuck, was, was Mister Consistency. No, that, no, that was me. Is, that was me. I said yeah, that. Mister Consistency. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and I was reflecting on that with Bryce, and I'm not saying anything that he hadn't said publicly or isn't public knowledge. I'm not, you know, I don't want to speak for Bryce, and of course, you know, he might tell the story a little different. Um, but having you know been in his corner this whole time, um, that isn't like his default setting or something that he didn't struggle with. He was there were national level competitions six, seven years prior to that, where he was going four or five for nine, you know, at the Arnold or at nationals and really struggling with trying to figure out what he needed to do to put it all together on the platform. Um, yet now he is aptly described as Mr. Consistency. And, you know, when he goes seven for nine, that's, that's, that's a, a slightly less than normal performance for him, you know? Yeah. So, so I think, I think that that speaks to just how this is not a fixed quality and it's something that can definitely be honed and improved over time. Um, but what it looks like to hone and improve that over time is, is not always the, the typical, you know, kind of stereotype uh, of the hyper-competitive athlete that we're often fed by the media and that the mainstream media really wants people to fit into. That's the story they almost always want to hear anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where when an athlete doesn't fit into it, there's public backlash which we've seen recently in some, some very, you know, big newsworthy things that are, you know, go beyond powerlifting. Um, but, but nonetheless, I just think it's a really interesting thing for sure. And I would just encourage people that if, if your personality doesn't seem to fit what you think is the world championship mindset athlete, 
let go of the idea that there is a world champion mindset athlete. I mean, you guys have been around the sport long enough. You've talked to people with vastly different perspectives who have all, you know, who can all deadlift a car. So, mm-hmm. yeah. A lot a of really it is- great non-powerlifting counterexample might be that that snowboarder from the 2018 Winter Olympics. Um, I think her name was was Chloe Kim, um, and you know she uh, overslept the morning of, like stopped to put makeup on, was late to the the starting line. Obviously, she has whatever it is, right? Because you don't you don't get to the Olympics and win a gold medal without putting in hard yards along the way. Um, but it certainly didn't look like the rah-rah, not sleeping the night before. Like, um, I'm going to be on the start my three hours before everyone else and be ready and warmed up before anyone else even gets there. Like, doesn't doesn't look like that at all. And I'm sorry, Ryan, I cut you off. No, uh, well, first off, how did she end up doing? Uh, she got a gold medal. She was the, the Olympic champion. That pissed me off if I came in second. I'd be like, God damn it, I was here three hours no, ahead no, no. of time. And she was, um, and, and the famous soundbite from her interview was that she was holding back the tears because she didn't want to wreck her mascara. Oh my god. I'm surprised that you uh that you don't remember that, Ryan. It was it was uh all over the news for, for a day or two. I uh I'm not huge in the Winter Olympics, but is she where's she from? USA? Not hundred okay. percent sure. Okay. Um if she was Canadian, I probably would have seen it in the news over here. But uh, <laughs> uh I was gonna say one of the best examples that I like, and this kind of doubles back, you know, you said um, you know, as an aging athlete. Here's a redemption story that that me this this will you'll identify with. And let me also say a lot of people come on drop sound bites, not just like powerlifters on like a King of Lifts episode or whatever. Although my man Taylor Atwood dropped some fucking doozies when he came on the one time. The one line that went all over and people like goat mentality was, "I'm not here to be a friend. I'm here to beat you." In that that was like boom. Everybody started sharing that. Um, but anyways, yeah, it was gold. But uh, a lot of people, I think Taylor's for really real built like that because I talk to him in DMs or whatnot. But uh, there are people who will drop sound bites in all sports to drop sound bites, though. Keep that in mind as well. When people hear this, they're dropping sound bites, they know because it's if they're a professional athlete, especially, you got to do what you got to do. You know, you want to be in the papers and do your thing, you got to drop some fucking sound bites, even if you're like, I got a wife and kids, man. I'm not trying to die for this shit. But you will be like, when I'm on the court, you got to kill me. Take that ball from me. But in reality, you want to go home, have dinner with your wife, whatever the shit. Um, But I was going to say, so George Foreman, when he fought Muhammad Ali famously, um, and he, Muhammad Ali knew, he's like, I think this guy's got quit in him. And he took him deep into the fight with the rope-a-dope and famously knocked him out in the eighth round. And he knew that the old saying, fatigue makes cowards of us all. You could be solid as you think you are, but if you've never been for real fatigued, then you'll know how much quit you have in your heart. Ali took him way deep because he thought this kid doesn't want it like I want it. And he's never been tested. And the first time is can be really rattling. And you can almost convince somebody you're not built like that. When it's the first time you're not built like that, you know, you're getting tired. Knocked him out. Uh, Foreman retires 10 years later, comes back and he's in his forties, his mid forties at 45 years old. He's got a title fight against undefeated 26 year old Michael Moore. And it's, it's a total joke in the media. Everyone's like, look at, he's getting a title shot, but this is for money. Cause Foreman is uber famous at this point in his comeback. Um, you know, he, he have sitcom the whole nine and he won, but he's winning over a bunch of tomato cans. So everyone thinks, all right, you knocked a bunch of tomato cans. You got yourself a, like $10 million in this fight, but we all know how this is going to end. 
And as he's walking down to the ring, you hear one of the commentators say something about those shorts, but put a pin in that. I can't, something about those shorts. And you could tell those shorts look old, right? The style and everything. And then as the fight's going and all of a sudden Foreman's not quitting, they go into the 10th round and then the guy goes, holy shit. Those are the same shorts he wore when he lost to Ali. And that's when it struck. This man's fighting demons and there will be no quit in him tonight. Those shorts have been waiting 20 years to come out the closet. And he one punch knocked out Michael Moore in a fight he'd been losing all night. Yeah, 45 years old. And uh, everyone's like, oh my God. And you could still see on the shorts a small bit of miscoloration on the side where he had hit the canvas slid when Ali knocked him out. And it was still there. And form, that's what anyone paying attention when they saw that, they were like, like they were like, if Michael Moore realized that at the time, you'd be like, oh shit, there's going to be no quit tonight. So anyway, it's just that to a nice cap on that in terms of, yes, you can get tougher. You know, sometimes it doesn't matter how old you are, whatever the shit, the guy's got everything in his corner, all the boxes. Sometimes that, that digging deep and be like, not tonight though. Not tonight though. If you're a hopeless romantic and I'm a fucking hopeless romantic when it comes to these things. Well, that's an amazing story. And I, I love it. I think that's awesome. And uh, the one thing I will say is that this type of mentality is probably required, or at least you have to deal with it if it's not in your mentality because someone else is bringing it to you in combat sport for sure. Yeah. You know? So yeah, yeah I, that's it's a little will, different. Yeah. Yeah. So. Will, you can impose your will on somebody in something yes. like that. Whereas you said, look, powerlifting, nobody's going to impose their will on you. It's you and gravity. Mm. You know, stay on, stay on course. When you got involved in power in uh, powerlifting and in bodybuilding, like I remember 2017 range. This shit was not the same as it is today in terms of what the programming we had and like, you know, the templates and whatnot. Like when you came in and you started powerlifting, were you, what was your overall impression with the training regimens and training protocols we had in place? Was it underwhelmed or were you like, this seems overly simplistic, not personalized, or were you just like, well, sounds okay to me. And then you learned as you went, you know, we got to, we got to dig deeper, get a little more scientific. Yeah. I've seen some, I've seen some eras, which I think is kind of cool. So when I first started, you know, getting into powerlifting, like there were no like raw meats. Like I, I would rock up to a meet and in a local competition, I wasn't even IPF affiliated and they'd be like, yeah, you can lift without the, the equipment. We'll let you, but you're going to lose. I'm like, all right. So this, you know, raw division. All right. And that became like right around like 2010, that was when they first started having raw divisions. And then the organizers were like, blown away that a bunch of people came out of the woodworks like oh you don't want to spend five hundred dollars on getting all this stuff together and you just want to lift weights like oh amazing apparently there's there's an appetite for lifting weights and it was hilarious how surprised they were and you know now we have seen um that just continue and and peak in the ipf especially um so when i first got into it the reason why i bring up equipment versus raw is that the dominant voices at the time in the mid-2000s were super heavy multiply lifters and um you know the 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 west side approach um and it was extremely popular with only an occasional deviation from it and it wasn't until like um like the raw unity meets and boss of bosses that you started to see other perspectives and i remember in the 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 like 
2010 period, I spent a lot of my time undoing things that really only made sense for, for equip lifters, like over, over tucking on, on bench press, you know, to try to get the most out of your suit when you're really just like moving your elbow actually out from underneath the bar for when you overdo it for raw lifters or taking, you know, too close, too close of a grip on bench or like ultra wide, like, Oh, he's going to sumo deadlift, but the bars in his back. Oh, he's squatting. That's weird. Mm. Um, I can't hit depth. It's like, that's cause you're yes, sir. In that same era, how many times did people tell you that the back was a prime mover for bench press or that hamstrings were a, were a prime mover for squat? Like how much That's of that did you have going on? All the goddamn time. And, and if I would I use any kind of logic today, yeah. <laughs> and if I would get any kind of, and if I would say anything logical to them, they'd just be like, well, you know, like the biggest guy in the world, say your lats are, are, are benching for them and that their hamstrings are the main mover in, in, in the squat. And I'm like, I, I hate you so much. Um, and, and there is, there's nothing I can say because I don't have, you know, a 1000 pound reverse band squat or whatever to half depth. So it just, I just didn't have the, uh, the, the, the kind of credibility that they needed to hear that. Um, but you know, it's interesting. It, interestingly, I also thought there was some stuff in West side that was kind of cool, you know, like um, it's essentially daily undulating periodization when you look at it and elements of it, and I do want to emphasize elements of it, not the whole kit and caboodle, uh, were quite interesting. And I remember some of the first programs I wrote for myself and Bryce, because he was actually my first competitive powerlifting client. People don't know oh, that. Shit, did you see yeah. gold? Dog, that's yeah, good. Oh, bro. So I wrote him a 12-week program that I thought was going to be great for a deadlift specialization phase because it put like, you know, 25 pounds or 10 kilos on, on my deadlift in 12 weeks it put 135 pounds on his deadlift in 12 weeks. And I, so I looked up and I went, all right, I need to be very careful here. I, 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 my, my ethos with Bryce was I need to protect this. I'm not going to try to be experimental or, or like, not that I wasn't because I was still a young coach, but my main goal, I remember, I remember telling him in like 2010 or 11, I was like, you know what, honestly, I think if we can keep you, relatively injury-free if we can prevent you from getting hurt you're going to be a world champion what? didn't realize you said that to him yeah i didn't realize i was predicting the predicting the future six years later but uh seven years i don't know but in advance but he was my first competitive powerlifting client who i started coaching in uh 2000 he's either 10 or 11 bryce and i constantly forget when it actually was so i've been working with him for more than a decade um so that was a really interesting thing that that my my first client ended up becoming my most successful. Um, now, of course, I've worked with hundreds of other powerlifters, um, but the, it's, it's, it's pretty cool that the, the one I'm still working with today was my first, which I just think is awesome. Dude, you'd, um, be, like, you'd be like, man, this is easy. I'm going to make so many world champions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, like the people who you cited, who I, who I work with, like Jess and Bryce, they make, make me look far smarter than I am. Like, you know, Jessica Bittner, as you know, was an incredible athlete before she ever came to me. And the first program I ever wrote for Bryce put a whole like, you know, one plate deadlift on, on top of whatever he was lifting at the time. So um, I, I will only take a limited amount of credit for these two individuals. <laughs> yeah. But, but it is. Um, so at the time, because I remember the West Side and I remember some guys like um, I do other other things like jujitsu and shit. And some of those guys are still mm. like. Like oh, yeah. I do some lifting. I do like, you know, a lot of West side stuff. I'm like, God damn it. And they're like, um, 
yeah, it's still big in some circles, like this West Side training and shit. Absolutely. But when did you see the change into a more scientific approach start happening? Because obviously you went down that path. Yeah, I think it I think it occurred at the same time as the general popularity of a science-based approach uh, in fitness generally. And I would say that I'd say the echoes of that started around 2013, 2014 is when things started to shift because you started to see, and I think the USAPL is probably the progenitor of where it really began to happen in powerlifting because you started to see a lot of thinkers um, do really well or do really well with their athletes. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the case. And I think it just has to do with the fact that there are far more variables to deal with when you're doing equipped lifting that's untested. Um, and it, and it was very, very small, like USAPL raw powerlifting was, was booming 2013, 2014. So there is for an anecdote to be useful, you have to have a large enough signal to noise ratio, you know? So when you get more people with the potential to become extremely high level lifters, we're getting exposed to various different approaches and some of them make a whole lot less sense than another, then you will start to see people shaking out who are using sensible approaches. And I think that's what started to happen. You know, I remember when, uh, when Mike Zerdos announced that, Hey, you know, uh, Lane Norton is, he was watching nationals is going to, is going to be your national champion this year. I think it was like 2013 or 2014. And I was like, Oh, that's this, this, this is, this is, might be a little different, you know, like this, this is <laughs> one of the is, first few Mr. times. Science, dude. Yeah. yeah. At the time he was seen as the uh, kind of the avatar of a science-based approach to lifting, but it's really common. Now. Like I, I think like RTS, TSA, TSG, um, the, all of the most popular uh, coaching and most prominent coaching services out there. They, they, it may not be their central core tenet of like, Hey, I need to have a, a citation after every Excel program. I write. And, and for the record, you don't want to do that. That's stupid, but to have science-based principles informing what you're doing and combining that with an individualized approach, which is also quite absent. I think uh, that all started to happen in the mid 20 teens, because prior to that, you know, like, so when there was a void left by West side, cause all of these raw lifters were, were coming about and the West side movement just never quite penetrated the raw mentality and ethos quite as well. You saw the void get filled by a lot of templates, like, like Shiko templates, you know, that was the biggest thing and where, you know, something, yeah, I did it too. Like a, a third of, of, of the, of the powerlifting community was accidentally running some 16 year old peaking block as a volume block <laughs> and they didn't even know it. Um, and, uh, you know, it would be years later before we actually got legit translations from Shiko and we found out, he's like, why are you guys all running this, this sub junior <laughs> women's pro- program that I wrote, you know, 10 years ago. Um, was, it's like a joke to him. He's like, you guys are serious. What the fuck? He's, he's like, you thought Shiko 37 was just a straight up like building program. Like, no, that's a specific block for someone I wrote. How did that even get on the internet? You know? So, and we're all like, oh, Shiko makes a lot of sense. And let me talk about the ordering <laughs> yeah. and it like. You know, this is kind of the emperor has no clothes and you find out that, uh, you know, what we're doing really makes zero sense. So there was a lot of templates and I think templates are still huge. People are very aware that individual individualization is important today, but let's be honest, like most people are going to engage with a powerlifting template program when they first get into powerlifting. And I bit the bullet when I wrote my books in late 2015. Uh, I remember Andy and and Andrea, my co-authors who are I think much better at me at keeping their ear to the ground of what does like the, the, the most common person in the, 
and like in, in the fitness field, how do they perceive it? Cause obviously I think it should be one way and I want to change it and I want it to become, you know, better and lift it up. And while I'm in it, I also have a, a lot of uh, biases related to what I'm trying to accomplish and my exposure to the data and being siloed around a lot of people who are doing it in, in ways that I think are better. So they were like, look, and I, I was very resistant to the idea of including programs in my books, the muscle and strength pyramids, mm. because as soon as you create a template, you know that it won't be ideal for some people. Like I have an aversion to doing something where I can be like, like, like wrong or, or like, it's an academic thing. Like if I, if I state something, that's a really basic claim, like, that oh, looks like it's sunny out. I'm like, but is it sunny? And do I need a citation <laughs> for that? Like, that's kind of cloudy. Some people could argue it's cloudy. Let me see if there's a meta-analysis on how sunny it is today. Um, and that's not a good way to operate in life, but it's part of my DNA at this point. So anyway, I, I, I bit the bullet and I wrote what I thought are some good template programs with customization elements, obviously including elements of auto-regulation, which makes everything a little more inherently individualized. And then I put a ton of caveats in my book about like, this is an example of how to use these principles, not the Eric Helms program. But people are like, I run the muscle and strength pyramid program. I'm like, all right, whatever. Like, I just have to accept that that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and running that's, a template and that's okay. is the lowest barrier of entry for people coming in, right? Like, there's not many people Absolutely. who want to read two books to be able to put together their own program or hire a coach when they're like, bro, I've been at the gym for a month. Like, yep. I just want bigger shoulders for the beach. Like, just like, let me, let me do my thing. And that is okay. I've come to learn and accept uh, at a visceral level. Um, and it is, it's very different writing a book for the, 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 the lifting community than it is to say, have someone sign up with 3D Muscle Journey and say, hey, can you please help me prepare for a powerlifting meet? Mm. Um, so, and I think, I think so long as you can communicate that to your audience, you can communicate that to individuals and you can talk about it like we are here now on a podcast, it's fine. And they shouldn't, they shouldn't go away and they're not going to go away. And also to be very fair is for the person who's just been lifting for a couple months or even maybe for a couple of years, but now you're getting into powerlifting for the first time, an individualized approach isn't going to be that much better because you don't, you, you don't have a need for individualization yet. You're like, I would like to squat 1.5 times body weight. The goal there is to start squatting and that will help you accomplish that at that early stage. So I think, um, well, whatever the equivalent of that is for the person that's appropriate and their, you know, genetics and, and, and body weight and, and sex and all that stuff. But I think those initial gains are going to happen to some degree. So long as you're like in the ballpark of sensibility, not, mm. I need to have, you know, a three hour consultation with Mike T to talk to me about emerging strategies. Like that's just not important until you get to a point where you've turned over so many stones and you're trying to squeeze blood out of each one of them and not getting much anymore, which is, you know, honestly, that's like intermediate powerlifters and later where it becomes quite difficult to keep progressing. And that's where um, you need to know the limitations of these templates. And I don't think we did in the mid two thousands. Like I knew people who were like peeking into raw unity on Shiko templates or running like, you know, Paul Carter's program or things like that. I knew people at a very high level, who were using maybe slightly modified, but very like, like the programming was, was quite homogenous, mm -hmm. uh, you know? So I knew a lot of people who like a whole gym would train a certain way, you know, um, going into a meet and, and yeah, there was like slight differences, but they were like the, like, if you look at the, the big picture variables, like what exercises are used for supplementary lifts and how many total sets you're using per week. And then how close to failure are, are you generally training? You would see a whole gym take the same approach or a whole region sometimes. 
in those time periods. And that would be, you know, about as far away from a template as you get, which is still basically just a template. Um, some of the things I used to notice is that, and this still happens, like the accessory lift that quote unquote works is not dependent on a bunch of coaches observing athletes and seeing what seemed to be best, but just what got repeated on the internet the most. Mm. Like, like I remember when, 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 when pause squats for raw lifters were the thing, you know, in like 2012, you know, and before that it had been, we finally realized box squats weren't that great in most cases for raw lifters, you know? And, um, and there's been other ones like, go ahead. 2018 where everyone was doing pit shock. Didn't matter who there you, you go. What was what your squat looked like? 2018 pit shock. Yeah, and you've got examples all like JM presses, or and it's not that these are are not useful tools. It's that they're tools, not hey everybody, you know what you need a wrench. And you're like, well, I, I have a nail in the wall, and you're like, yeah, you just turn sideways and bang that bitch into the wall. You're fine. Like no, like get a hammer, you know. So the I think I think that is something that is now much more widely understood. in in certain lifting circles, people understand that there are tools for situations. I think the average athlete understands, especially when they get pretty good, that they're going to need an approach that works for them. And I think that is, is, is really, really good. And people know which variables to manipulate. So that, that, that's kind of been those like three epochs in my mind, there was the, the pre 2013, 20 teens, uh, where it was still West side dominated and it was really bad fit for raw lifters there was kind of the emergence of it, but still this heavy use of templates. And then now I think we've started to see the, the awakening and the combining of more scientific principle-based approaches with individualization, which is great. It's, it's funny, like also even what coaches look like, like previously you go to the biggest bro in the gym and then later on you're going to athletes and that's still here, but not as much, but you, for a while there, you would go to the athlete and it could be a 74, 83 or whatever the shit. So he's not the biggest guy in the gym, but you are going to the athlete who's proven on the platform, but more than likely they're going to give you a work for them. And more than likely you're not a one percenter and they are. So how's that going to work out? Small little adaptations, but now you got people, we're, we're somewhat shaking that loose. It's still not quite a hundred percent. You know, I just had um, Solana Lewis on here and we we're talking about women in uh, coaches and how, you know, a lot of times it's difficult for women to get a lot of men going to there. And she's like, I get it. If you're a 300 pound man, you're going to look at me and be like, how will you know what it's like to be in my body walking out like 800 pounds on my back and blah, blah, blah. She goes, I get it. But the point is I'm going to use a science-based approach towards this. And she's got all this background as well. And um, you know, she's like, I'm at least, I'm going to be far more capable to do a variety of people because I'm using a science-based approach as opposed to just, if you go to one other guy, who's also 300 pounds, he's going to give you what worked for him. And if that doesn't work, he's not going to know a lot of different things he could do. There's not, you're going to reach the ceiling of how far he could take you pretty quickly. So you better be pretty good, pretty quick. Whereas elite with her, it's like, no, I know I'm not 300 pounds. Yes. We're going to have to use some communication to get there, but I actually know how to, how to fix this. I know how to use different tools and, and look at this. And we're starting to an extent, you know, we got guys like, uh, like what's going on with uh, like Taylor Atwood, for instance. And then when Jason Trombley came on and Jason Trombley is, looks like he's going to do your taxes. 
You know what I'm saying? He he doesn't look like Russell or he, my man doesn't, you know, it's not like that. But when he comes on and he's, he talks like, you know, I, I wrote this and, you know, I sent it off to uh, a dude in Australia with two PhDs and be like in load management, be like, does this look good to you? And he's, yeah, it looks good. And then we're like, we're consulting and whatever. And we're no stone left unturned. And um, I think we got Taylor where we need to get Taylor. And then it's like, so it's like, oh, that's how you, you don't necessarily want to go to a guy who's just jacked and performs on the platform. He can't take you to where, you know, where you need to go. And we're starting to get there a little bit. And the way coaches look is changing and their backgrounds and whatnot. I would a hundred times over go to you. You said earlier, like, listen, my total is this and it's not going to wow you. And I'm like, yeah, but your fucking resume is that and say less, you know what I mean? Like I would way more go with someone like you than somebody with 200 kilo on the total. You know, you're, you're far better off. I think we're starting to get there piece by piece. Not a hundred percent. I know some Jack dudes can just drop the rap and it'll blow up because they're jacked and strong. And probably to an extent for an intermediate person, it's going to, they're going to do wonderful on it anyways, but you will get to a point if you're at the upper level, you know, and um, when, if you want to break through and actually be like them, but a lot of people, I guess may not get there anyways. If you're not going to get that far, fuck it. Use the app. Just like you said, if you're just going to get as far as intermediate, you're probably good. People slowly starting to get that the uh, the Venn diagram of skills that make a good athlete and the Venn di- and skills that make a good coach don't have a ton of overlap. They're probably got a little bit of overlap, but yeah, but it's not a, it's certainly not a circle. Hundred percent, yeah. And it's it's a funny thing because the um, the mo- the bigger a sport, the more this is obviously understood, and the more kind of tradition based it is. Like you guys think powerlifting is bad, who bodybuilding is bad. I tell you what. Yeah. Oh my God. So like, I remember, and this is a while ago and it definitely, definitely hasn't improved. I'm not trying to uh, like, like throw, throw, throw all my people under the bus, but I remember putting an interview with Matt Ogus, uh, who you may or may not know who that is, but he is a, you know, pretty high level amateur natural bodybuilder with great genetics and a great physique uh, who, um, you know, I, I coached for the 2011 and 2013 seasons. I remember there was a YouTube video where I was, interviewing and we were training together and um or it's 2011 actually yes yeah, 2011 and, and both of us actually where i know i'm from there you go so we were both in like in 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 shape and we were like in our workout gear and one of like the most popular comments on it was like why are you bigger than your coach and i was just like you know as someone who's like has, is like a sports science background i'm like like try to put that in context of any other sport like why, why is this world tennis champion taking advice from a coach if he can't be, beat her in tennis? And I'm like, but then she would be the world. What are you talking about? Like, it doesn't make any sense, you know? So it's just, uh, it's just a, a ridiculous proposition that basically once you get to the highest level, you can't have a coach and you couldn't yeah. have gotten coached to be there because you would need the world champion who's better than you to be the coach. But if they did that, then why aren't you their coach? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if so anything, if a coach hasn't made people better than they already are, that's probably a red flag. Like if the coach has never made an athlete better than themselves, like that's, that's probably not a good thing. That's not something that you should aspire for. Yes. If you are the world champion and therefore you're allowed to coach everyone and you stay the world champion and no one else does. I mean, like, that's not, that's not a good thing. That's, why am I hiring your ass? You know, like, so, <laughs> like, so, so there's just like just some face basic logical breakdowns that don't make any sense there. But when you think about it, like, let's talk about like, like football, like, yes, most football coaches played football, but some of them didn't play football after like 
high school. You know, they, they're, no one expects a, you know, these guys and gals in, in, in team sport environments to all have been extremely high level or currently be extremely high level athletes. They expect them to be masters of their craft and to understand the game, which often does coincide with having played it. Cause that's how you get an experiential understanding of it. So yeah, it's just, uh, it's a weird mentality. Um, but I like when you think about the roots of powerlifting and the roots of bodybuilding, where it's basically just handed down from someone else in the gym to you, we understand how that's basically the perception. Cause these are, like counterculture sports, you know, like if, if you look at the history of, of strength sport and physique sport, like you're a weirdo for doing this. It's probably going to make you a worse athlete. You're going to be muscle bound. You're a weird freak of society. Like yeah. are, aren't those just a bunch of gay guys? Like that's, that's like historically what would basically was said for all this. So you're not going to go out in the world and, and proudly proclaim what you are and then seek out some sports scientists the sports scientists until like the sixties or seventies were anti-lifting anyway, you know? So isn't that anyway. wild? Is, uh, yes. It, okay. First off, I had another question and I'll double back, but you just hit something that's also rubs me the wrong way. Um, yeah. There are still some people like, well, I'm sure there are some sports where lifting isn't going to help, but there is yes. for sure. But there's a lot of sports where some people are just straight up. You shouldn't lift. And I remember, do you know Mo Farah, the, I don't know what distance he runs, but he's like a hundred pounds and a super duper uh, long distance runner. I don't know that it's like 10,000 meters, some kind of shit, two time Olympic champion for anybody listening. And he power lifts squat, bench, deadlift. And they're like, which, what, what kind of training is uh, fucking power lift, smash weights. And he's like, he's, he gets after it. And um, I remember it was like a big to do the commentators. Cause he's a small dude. But he was like running and he took a tumble, did like a cartwheel, popped back up and kept running in, in the middle of the Olympics. Didn't miss a stride because he's bulletproof. And the, the commentators are like, that's from powerlifting. And it was like, uh, like so I, I wonder, like, I mean, are there sports you think that should be using powerlifting more often or weightlifting more often that don't? That just look at it like, no. Yeah, this, this tends to be very sports specific and like about, about the culture of the sport, you know, like I, I've gotten exposed to some sports here that I didn't even know existed until I came to New Zealand. So like, for example, cricket, you know, right. um, it's, it's not just an insect folks. Um, there's a, there's, it's basically some strange, you know, baseball second dimension world. But like, I, I've met a few folks who are, they've done like their PhDs in sports science related to cricket strength conditioning. And they've talked about how in the last few, few years, it's been a monumental shift. They're not open to the idea of strength conditioning. Um, or like there are some sports that are like, for example, I've talked to some uh, European uh, football, soccer, SNCs, and they're like, yeah, we can get them to lift, but they, they don't lift, you know, like they lift, but they don't lift, you know? Mm. <laughs> so I think it's easy also for us to, so first off, there are some sports that could benefit from uh, resistance training that culturally, for whatever reason, it's just not something that's emphasized. And therefore, you know, the way athletes typically think is, yeah, I'll do whatever will make me better, but I'm seeing all these people who are better than me and none of them lift. So it's very hard to initially get that ball rolling because there's no, there's no anecdotal example of, oh, you know, that, 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 that gal or that guy does a lot of weightlifting and they're a world champion. Cause that's kind of mm -hmm. how, you know, the typical person's uh, mentality starts rolling. And it's not until you get a rather, 
experimental or avant-garde or science-minded uh, coach who hires an S&C, and they're also going to win before you, know, you start to see those, uh, those cultural gears changing. With that said, I think like the principle of specificity cannot be understated, you know? So when, when you have athletes who are moving at fast velocities and they're moving like the heaviest load, they're moving through space is them or a ball. Um, and they're changing direction a lot. Don't get me wrong, like working on maximal strength and doing, I would say lifting in general will definitely fit in. But using like the, the, the powerlifting programs as a basic template for that, I think that is actually, that's kind of like a holdover from those West side. Like you talked about a lot of athletes are just like West side influence. Right. That's kind of, they're always a little bit behind. And sometimes you'll run into people who basically just bolt on a powerlifting program on top of their normal sports training. And, and I'd probably say in more cases than not, that's not going to be helpful, you know? Uh, just because it's not really doing a specific needs analysis of, of what does that athlete need? Like what energy systems do they use? Okay. At, you know, what contraction types are dominating their sport? You know, like, uh, do they need isometric strength, yielding isometric strength? Do they need to be much more absorptive and eccentric? Is it mostly concentric? What joint angles are they really, you know, stressed at? And then, you know, what, what velocities do they need to produce force in? Should we be doing heavy ass slow lifting or should we be looking at you know, maybe at some point earlier, but primarily doing like, like higher velocity training. So I think while resistance training is going to be beneficial for a ton of sports, I think powerlifting is probably uh, a little too narrow for me to just be comfortable. Like, you know what? It'd be better if everybody just squat bench and deadlift and one of them, you know? So, yeah. It is true. I mean, I guess you're right. Cause I had this conversation with some buddies about like, for instance, the juice era of baseball. And, but your Rory's coming back in here, but you're right. Just because these guys are juiced up and, and Jack doesn't mean in the weight room, they're doing necessarily power lifting or that's the core piece of it. You look Jack because you're probably on copious amounts of like, like Barry Bonds hat size grew, you know, his skull got bigger. So we don't know what he was doing to get like, you know, hit the ball. I'm sure he's lifting some weights, but exactly what it looked like. You can only, it's kind of guesswork a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember I'm from, I'm from Oakland. That's where I grew up. So I oh. remember Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco, the, the Bash brothers, you know, and I, there was a poster of them doing this and it, and it looked like the thing from Predator with, yeah. with Arnold and, um, oh, I'm forgetting the actor's Action name. Jackson. I know he played Action Jackson. I forget his real name. But I know yeah, he it, it, it'll come to me. And, uh, and so like, there was definitely a period where like the eighties and nineties were heavily influenced by like action movies and, and that, and that style of everything. And, and, you know, like batting and baseball is also a rel- rel- relatively narrow application of the whole sport, you know, like, you know, like, I, I don't, I don't know that, you know, being a power lifter is going to help you play shortstop, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but smashing a ball out of the park, you know, producing, you know, swinging a bat as hard as you can for yeah yeah, you're going to do some heavy strength training for that. It makes, it makes sense. But yeah, I think, I think people sometimes underestimate um, how much strength conditioning transfers to performance um, and what that looks like. And while I do think most athletes should lift, I think the lifting is going to look reasonably different from sport to sport. Do you think for stuff when you said a powerlifter playing shortstop? I pictured Brett Gibbs for some reason. I don't know. Maybe some New Zealand <laughs> flavor here, but it is what it is. Um, but uh, do you is 
do you ever look out there at some of the coaching services that are out there and you're like, how are these people churning out the people they're churning out? You don't got a name drop, but are you ever looked out there and be like, is yours, how is this happening? Yeah. I mean, I have from years ago, but I'll be honest, like in recent years, like the, the people who are probably the most visible in powerlifting at the moment, and maybe I'm just kind of, you know, just looking, but like even, even some of the folks who are, who are not like TSG, TSA or RTS, the newer folks, like, like Joey Flex, Swole Fester, like if you look at what they're doing, it is heavily influenced by, like, by the principles of science. And I'm not surprised at all. And they also talk a lot about solving specific problems with athletes. And I think like, that's the most important thing that a coach needs to have from a, like just a pure performance perspective, like obviously like emotional intelligence, communication, passion, and wanting to help people safeguard their, their career long-term and, and, you know, be able to be a sounding board and all that good stuff. Like autonomy support is really what coaching is about. But if we're talking about the, uh, the programming of performance and powerlifting, it comes down to, do you have systems to identify what the barriers to improve performance are, what the potential pathways to improve performance are, and can then you communicate that well to the athlete, get their buy-in, program it, and then can you assess whether or not that worked or didn't and to what degree in a reasonably short turnaround time before they go, you know what, I'm going to work with somebody else that didn't work. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing with a, a higher population of powerlifters being self-selected for more quickly. And that's why emerging strategies that is, is like a very popular concept in RTS, but kind of everyone is not, not to say that it's derivative or not, not creative or not really intelligence. It's, it's a approach to, to doing that. But basically what Mike T is talking about, and it sounds really complex, is just you need to have a system to figure out if the things you're modifying work. And if someone can't articulate that, uh, or it doesn't come across that's something that they emphasize, or if they kind of just have a filtering system for everybody, you know, like everybody just kind of, here, here's my, here's my approach. Like when I hear a coach say something like, you know, here's how we do it down in Wichita Falls or whatever, you know, like I know that they're probably having success despite what they're doing, um, not because of it. Um, and what you will notice is that there's very few people who come out of nowhere who weren't already popular who create one of these systems that would, would, you know, make me face palm and then continue to succeed. Right. Because they don't have enough undeserved clout initially to actually build this, the, the survivorship bias of having these athletes. It's hard for it to happen in modern times, but there was a ton of it before, you know, like if, if in, in the era before, you know, social media was as ubiquitous and powerlifting was smaller. We were talking about this before, like people were just doing and repeating things that other people said was good. So you could be a coach who did the same thing for everyone. And then anytime someone didn't succeed, you'd just blame the athlete or say they were lazy because you'd had somebody else willing to take up the mantle who would happen to, to get come out of the meat grinder with, with a title, right. you know? And that's the, the, the messed up thing about anecdotes. And this is really true for any coach or coaching service out there. And something I've been very careful to safeguard against is that as you become more popular, your success begets confirmation bias. So what the hell did I just say? What that means is let's say, for example, you know, 3D Muscle Journey comes out in 2009, 2010, pre-social media, people are applying. We don't have system yet. We're doing our best and we're figuring out what works for the, for the next two years. That's making us better. 2012 comes out. Everyone loves Matt Ogus. 
everyone signs up. And if we had had a mentality of here's the 3DMJ approach, we had so many people clamoring to come to us that the people who succeeded with it would be our confirmation bias. We'd be focusing on our success rather than the 80% of people who maybe weren't succeeding. Mm. And we would, and then we would think, oh, this is why this is, you know, what we're doing is working. And then even further than that, people would come to us because they, they pre-selected for the approaches we take. If there had been a, a stock standard 3DMJ method, the people who thought that doesn't make any sense, or I don't want to try that, or elements of that didn't work for me, they wouldn't sign up for our services. So now that you have popularity, and if you have a system, now you're more likely to get people who are going to have the belief, the placebo effect, if you will, from trying it, and potentially actually be more better suited to it. You know, like if, like we talked about a really simple version of this is if you're a, you're a super heavyweight powerlifter who decide, who's, who's a world champion and decide to get into power and into powerlifting coaching and a bunch of super heavyweights sign up with you and you do well, that's just going to kind of continue your super heavyweight dominant style of programming. You're not going to develop skills outside of that. And you're going to think it works for everyone. And then like the 74 kilo lifter or the 57 kilo lifter who comes to you and you give them the super heavyweight program and they kind of plateau and bounce you won't get feedback from that to understand what was wrong and you won't have those athletes. So as soon as you are seen as a certain type of thing out there as a coach and you have a reputation and you have a system, you have to be really careful to make sure that you aren't just getting people coming to you who are expecting you to do what you do, you do it. And then because they self-selected for it, they succeeded. And then it reinforces your own biases that you're amazing. You need to have systems in place to ensure that you aren't just becoming steadily worse over time. Because how many people in the fitness industry have we seen where they were pretty reasonable five years ago, and now they're just sipping their own Kool-Aid and hype so hard that's just they're a joke? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, 100%. You're right. And um, it's true how you, like, you can have a confirmation bias happen. And then it's also true where you could see how somebody might fall off and they don't even understand fully why, like, why is this not working anymore? Um, but yeah, you, you, you start building it around yourself. It's the, uh, I, I, you know, I think at this point though, and you kind of hit the nail on the head where people will realize if you can't personalize it and ask the proper questions and start changing over time, there's so many flipping options, you know, people like there was no shortage of options, nor, you know, podcasts and ways of taking in like YouTube and, and, and digesting information that, um, you know, people are going to find out like you, you're not, you're not coming back to me for follow up questions and you haven't tinkered with this program much at all. And like, they will just leave on their own, even if they, cause they just even suspect like, yeah, I'm progressing, but maybe I could be progressing more because I don't think we're having the right conversations here from what I heard. And you're right. Like the people uh, you named, obviously, I mean, it's a year after year at this point. It's funny when you say new guys like Joey Flex, that's how old OG we are when he's been around for like half a decade at this point. This is, this is how old, you make us feel old, but he's like a new guy like Joey Flex. He's, like, he's been around for like half a decade, but they're like, new, but small professors a little newer on the scene. But it's also interesting when, um, you know, Okay. So yeah, like the, before that, uh, RTS yourself, Joey flex newer than your generation, but then swole professor coming in and like, there is, you know, new people. Cause for a little while there, I remember thinking, you know, when there's the old guard and they have so many people 
And when you enter in, you're like, well, why don't I work with this person who I know is good? I know is intelligent. Why would I gamble on you? And how would someone carve out their, their place in it? And then, um, you know, Joey came in 2016, but even that was before a lot of social media boom happened. So he's actually been around for a hot minute, but then a guy like Swole Professor, it's like, how could you take people who ordinarily would have went the Joey Flex route, would have went, you know, uh, the strength guys route, would have, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how it's going to happen. People will come and they will carve out a niche and the success of their athletes will speak on it. But it's difficult to see it coming, man. And what they're going to do. And it is. And it's also, um, it's hard these days, you know, like I remember when we first started with three and also just, just to make sure, like, cause I'm calling new kids on the block. That's really just old man perspective. Yeah. I got a lot of respect <laughs> on their names just so they know if you're listening, Joey, but, um, but yeah, like when 3d muscle journey first came out, I remember we were looking at Lane Norton and Joe Klimzuski as the only other two like online coaches I was even aware of. So like the diet doc and bio lane to two, you know, like you can't even open your Instagram right now without, without tripping over two coaches, you know, like talking to one another on, on, on the same post, you know? So it is, is a vastly different world. And I think, I think that can be a big challenge for people. You know, sometimes I get asked like, Hey, uh, you're successful in, you know, in your little domain. And how, like, what do you, what do you have advice for an upcoming coach? And I always make sure that I'm reasonably humble in my response. Cause I came up in an era that is not like this, you know? Um, and the pressure to be relevant now gets people in trouble a lot. And it's kind of a pressure cooker. Like people feel like they need to get their degree. They need to be a good athlete and they need to have a championship athlete. They need to have an internet presence uh, and they need to have a, a whole staff of coaches and they need to have an RD and a, a physical therapist yesterday. Um, and they're 22. And I think it's a, I think it's a really difficult thing to, to not be, I would say blinded by the expectation of, of immediate success and getting your shit together immediately that social media and the, the speed of the kind of the powerlifting culture is today with balancing with that, with me going, well, hold on. I need to actually become good at my craft. Like I need to be someone worthy of listening to. Like I've only done two meets. I'm in my second year of school. I've coached three people and, and two of them are my family. It's okay that I'm a novice coach right now. Everyone starts as a novice coach. And in fact, I really shouldn't want, and this is the, this is the one that I, I try to get across to some of these young coaches. I don't want to blow up now. I don't want to accidentally stumble upon a world championship when I, when I don't really know what I'm doing, you know, I don't want to get a Bryce Lewis and then just happen to, to roll the dice and come up big because I won't be able to reproduce it. Like I'll, I'll get a lot of clients coming in and then I'll start generating negative, you know, press for myself as a lot of people start to work with me and don't, you know, so like you don't want early success. You don't want a rocket ship to, to exposure as a coaching service what you want is to actually learn how the hell to do this thing and, and then get that, that exposure and success because you know what you're doing and then you're set and then you're okay. Um, and if you can get out of that mindset, you, you can avoid a lot of pitfalls like controversial posts and talking shit, you know, like mm. call outs, you know, making a YouTube channel based around all the stuff that you're going to look back on five years now and be like, Oh my 
God, that's embarrassing. Like, I really don't look like a professional right now, you know? And I think um, I'm just really glad that I didn't try to come up in this current era because I don't know how well I would have done that. You know, a lot of the dumb shit I did is, you know, hidden on some forum 12 years ago. So it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's a challenge for sure. And I think just to any coaches who are out there, um, yeah, just, just treat it like a skill, treat it like a craft, like respect, respect the, the, the hours you got to put in to really know what the hell you're doing and, and take your time to do that. Like, for example, I've watched Rory over the last, gee, since I've come to, to New Zealand, um, just becoming a fantastic coach. And like, I would say any, any, now, now don't, don't you, don't you look at me like that? No, I, I've seen, I've seen your work. See, this is the, this is the Kiwi mentality. It's worse than even Canadians. They can't take compliments. Man, I tell you what, but um, like I've, I've seen the local, local powerlifting community here in New Zealand grow since 2012. And I've seen some, some folks who started out as junior lifters who are now incredibly well-respected coaches for the right reasons. And I think it has to do kind of with the, like the tall poppy syndrome of Kiwi culture. Like most Kiwis, aren't willing to put themselves out there like that. And I think that actually helps them so that by the time they are worthy of, of having that respect on their name, they, they, they have more than they're willing to even admit like, like Rory here. So I, I think it's hard to feel like you can take the years to put into your craft and, and slowly build something because social media makes you feel like you're not relevant and you have to be relevant yesterday. And there's people getting clients all the time and, and you got bills to pay. So I, it's a, it's a, it's not a, it's a rough world. It's not a kind world problem to solve. And the reality doesn't match what it looks like. So yeah, I'm just, I guess I'm grateful that I came up in a, in a relative obscurity, you know? So dude, same. I think back, um, cause I'm 42 and, and I'm like, my God, I was 22, 20 years ago. And holy smokes, was I a different human being back then. And I am so glad there was no social media at the time. There was internet, but it, you know, wasn't the same. Um, but yeah, I don't know what the hell, like there are some people who are trying to carve out their niche and um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't even fault them if they're like trying to do what, like call outs or some kind of gimmicky thing or whatever, like, or if they're in the middle of a, some kind of a rivalry, how they react, you know, and whatnot. And I think to myself, like, yeah, especially like podcasting, you know, how many freaking been doing this for years. And I got to tell you how many hours of talkity talk, talk we do. Um, and it's, and it's goes on for years with so many people. How, if we were like in our twenties and sometimes you just I, I know I was like far more brash and like shoot from the hip and, you know, you know, talking about getting some sound bites and then um, how I might look back and be like, God damn it. If, if like five years later, I'd be like, Oh shit. That was, uh, you know, I'm sober glad I've, I've, uh, you know, all this happened when it happened. And that's why also I give a lot of space to a lot of people. If uh, how many times I tell my remind myself, you were that guy too, probably, huh? So relax, let people grow. It is what it is. Like when you have someone in the community and you're acting a certain way, be like, have a short memory on it. If you feel somewhat insulted a little, be, be, be like, have a short memory. And if he's willing to come to the table, go to the table and relax, man. Don't take it too. Cause that's uh, tough, man. I am so, I, mean, I talk about this with my boys that I went to high school with and grew up with early twenties. And we're like, holy smokes, man. <laughs> we we dodged some bullets. 
I grew up just on the cusp of social media, right? Like I was, I was born in 1994. So like Facebook blowing up was when I was, when did Facebook blow up? Like 2010, 2011. So I was like 14, 15, something like that, right? Uh, caught the beginning of YouTube, caught the beginning of Instagram, got TikTok now, which, which I hate, but whatever. Um, but I was so lucky, right? Like I was, I was lucky that the, the first sort of good content that I found was like, Actually, it was a lot of it was old bodybuilding.com forums of like Eric and Lane Norton. And like, I actually got some purely by chance stumbled onto the right stuff at like a formative time because it, I could have stumbled onto very much the wrong stuff at that time and just gone in a totally different direction. Right. Um, and it's a shame because there's definitely some people who would have stumbled onto that and would have gone into a direction which is. Uh, less good and has resulted in, in not so great outcomes in some cases. You could be 300 pounds right now with neck tats and um, in the untested division. If you went on the wrong form, if you went on the oh, wrong yeah. form, uh, instead, you oh, I want to see. As far as my grandmother is concerned, uh, these are about as bad as neck tats anyway. So, um, yeah. Can we start a petition to have a 300 pound neck tat, Rory? <laughs> I feel like <laughs> a gas up. Just let's do an experiment. Dude. I just want to see you squat halfway down with your legs basically touching the plates on a sumo deadlift out of a mono rack. And someone just to yell far too early. (laughs) I appreciate that. That you'll take that bullet for me just so I can have a a chuckle at at the fact that you now have severe type 2 diabetes. (laughs) (laughs) I need help yeah. getting out. I need to stop for a rest on the way to the car after the meet, um, even though it's only parked 50 meters up the road. I want to ask you, Eric, who is the most gifted athlete? Because you've been you've worked with quite a few over the years now. The most gifted, gifted genetic freak that you've worked with, do you think? Man, I mean, it's from a powerlifting perspective, it's got to be either Jess or Bryce. I mean, they're both incredible. Um, or, I, or any, anyone, anyone though, any, okay. across the board. Mm, yeah. I mean, there's been some ridiculous bodybuilders who I've worked with. I don't know that any, I would say are as gifted as those two. I think they're both incredibly talented. Um, yeah, I, I to, to be honest, it's probably either Jess or Bryce and I do, I have, oh, obviously, you know, Jess came to me to, to work with me during a period, like she was interested in doing some like bodybuilding and we'd had time off from COVID and she needed a bit of a break from powerlifting. And, but she was already an incredibly talented, you know, arguably seen as one of the best lifters, you know, out there. So I didn't get to see her, her, like her formative years, which I think probably would have, you know, informed me more um, to see, you know, how much did she respond to training initially and all that. But um, yeah, I mean, she's pretty awesome, obviously. So it's, it's probably one of the two of them. Um, but I was just like, that was an exaggeration, 12 weeks, 135 pounds on, on his deadlift. Like the first time. So I met Bryce. Here's a fun story. He completed, he competed in a, a bodybuilding show, a natural bodybuilding show in California with me. He was in the, uh, the junior division, I want to say. So he was in his, like, he was like 20 and I was in the open and he hung out with us and, and like afterwards the whole 3DMJ crew went to this, uh, went to this gym on Sunday and trained. That's how crazy we are the day after a bodybuilding show. And we're like deadlifting too. Oh um, 
Yeah, and he pulls 495, or no, 405, uh, and he can't really keep his back straight. So that's like, that was the point at which I saw Bryce. It wasn't in my head like, oh, he's a genetic freak or anything like that. And I came over and I like try to help him out with his hip positioning and, and like where he, where he started his hips to kind of keep his back straight. And then not, not long after that, he was like, hey, you know, I'd like to do some coaching. And, you know, I think I want to focus a little more on strength than, than, than the bodybuilding thing, even though I'll probably come back to it. Uh, long story short, he didn't come back to it. Within weeks, he was deadlifting 600 pounds. And I was like, oh, my God, like what just happened? So, um, so yeah, that, that was that was probably the, my first exposure to a really talented athlete was, was Bryce. Um, and also just seeing someone who had like, I mean, he was a competitive bodybuilder. So he was someone who dots eyes, crosses T's, likes to control variables. Um, I remember when I was mentoring Bryce, when he decided he wanted to get into coaching, uh, we're talking 2012, uh, right around the time, right before TSA started we had a lot of conversations about how he didn't like how much guesswork was involved in programming. He was like, well, listen, if you, if you increase volume or if you increase load, you get stronger. Right. And I was like, eh, you know, like it depends, like, you know, what happened previously, like what's going on other aspects, like, well, like where was your volume? Before? So he wanted there to, he wanted to learn the levers to pull, to make athletes stronger. And I think he started to see that to some degree, like the pedestal he had me on, like I was the, the the big Wizard of Oz face, and in actuality, I, I was just a guy trying to figure this out with him. And I had I was developing systems, and we were collaborating together. And I think now he's all about that. Now he's all about individualization, elements of auto regulation. What do we know and not know? What are our cognitive biases? How do we create better systems? But at the time, just to give you an idea of, I think not only did Bryce have the physiological talent, but he had the mentality to where he he was willing to to to, to control variables and be very on it. Um, and especially in like his formative early years. Um, and, and people don't remember, but you know, he's a, he's coming down from the one Oh fives now and he's dieting and he, he, he's, he cut his chops at the highest level in the one Oh fives, but we actually cut down to the one eighty ones for some comps back in the day. And he was walking around pretty freaking lean and he's done bodybuilding shows. So this is a guy who's very willing to, um, to be a soldier and, and do hard things while doing other hard things and, and, and put together a lot, a lot all at the same time. So I think uh, Bryce has a lot of character traits that, uh, that lead to him to being, I think a very, very talented athlete. Um, so yeah. Uh, privileged to work with him. I will say. It's, I love the fact that you guys are still together after all this time. It's freaking rare. There's like you guys in like, when I think about it, like, you know, like I remember, um, well, like Taylor and, and Jason Tremblay and the strength yeah. guys, that's another one that like, it's rare though. A lot of people jump from coaching service to coaching service or, or become like, you know, start their own coaching service branch off. And then, um, I mean, like Bryce did, but he still stayed with you. Like, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's pretty freaking rare. It doesn't happen very often. I remember having Joey on Joey flex. And I was like, it's gotta be tough. To because for a long time, when I thought of and now I don't think of it at all, but when I thought of John Hack, I thought of Joey Flex. Do you remember when those two Joey came through with John Hack? This is this is going back a ways. A lot of listeners probably don't even remember the 2016 Hack versus Gibbs and the whole nine or weren't around. I shouldn't even say remember, but they weren't around at the time. But it was amazing. And then, like, I remember that was how I pictured like Joey 
and, and John Hack. And then picture like Joey and Sean Noriega were like, I just picture them together. Like it was like, you know, that was the, their crew. And um, I remember having uh, Joey on the podcast. I'm like, it's got to be tough. Like when somebody that you've had, like he had both of those two before they ever had done anything, right? Like, like he still had that message and it's crazy now. He should repost it because he posted one time not too long ago. John reaching out and hey, I know you don't know who I am, but I know you're, you're you know, you're, you're a strength and conditioning coach wondering if I could work with you. And this was before John Hack was like everything he's now, obviously. And it's so cool. And it seemed like Sean, you hit Sean from the get to go, right? And it's got to be tough. I asked you, I'm like, how tough is it, man? Like when someone moves on, you know, when you had all that together, you know, and, and, cause it's rare that they don't move on at some point and it's nothing to do with like, obviously they moved on, but Joey's had so many world champions since then. So it's nothing to do. What could I have done more? It's not that like Joey's done tons. Like since then he's been more successful. You know, he's had more world champions since then. Um, but it's, it's gotta be fucking, that's one of the hardest parts I could think of. Like if Bryce left you, I, I would be hurt. Like, you know what I mean? I would be like, what the fuck, Bryce? I would be in his DMs be like, think about this. Don't break up yet. You know what I mean? It'd be tough. Like if, I'm sure it's gotta, like, if you ever thought about that, Bryce was somebody else. Holy fuck. I show up at his house with like a boom box and like, I, baby, come back to me. Yeah, like. I'd be checking up on you. I'm like, you all good, man. Let's talk, man. Let's go for beers. Or... I tell you what, the, um, I have had far more athletes leave than those who have stayed with me for the entire time I've ever worked with them. And I think that is to some degree, the natural state of coaching. Um, you are often, the right thing, well, if, if, if you have a decently long coaching relationship and it's not staying out of obligation um, or convenience or something like that. But if, if you guys had a good coaching relationship for a while and it ends, it means that at, at your level as a coach in that time and where they were at and what they needed, it was a really good fit. Um, and then for some reason, it, it was no longer that. And I, I've looked back and there are many times where there was nothing that, that, that I could have done differently or known, given the knowledge, constraints, and experiences I had at the time of working with them to have you know, kept them. And there's other times where there was something I could have done, and I saw an error. Um, and I think uh, one thing that I have done right with Bryce, and I, well, I think is one of the reasons why we keep working together, is I've allowed our relationship on my side of it to evolve to where it needed to be. So there was a period where it was much more like, oh, yeah, you, you're the coach. I'm getting the program for you. You are the, the guru on the hill, you know. And not that it was ever overtly stated like that, but it was just in an era where there was much less collaboration and it was a little more top down. And then as I got more and more exposed to ideas of auto-regulation, there was, okay, let's shift towards a more collaborative approach. And I remember initially Bryce hated RPE oh, and wow. using that. And there was a long period of time, and we don't use it exclusively now, where I wouldn't program with RPE for Bryce because it got him in his head too much. And I started to realize, oh, there's, you know, different horses for different courses. And I think his, on, on, on my side, the willingness to evolve the relationship and change and to figure out where and to what degree we're collaborating and who is leading the conversation and where do I, you know, what does our communication style look like? I allowed that to change and I was open to it. Um, and I think on Bryce's side is that he always has spoken up. So it's not that we've never had disagreements. It's not that I've, I've just always hit on the perfect program for him. 
It's that when something doesn't work or he doesn't have a good feeling about it or things aren't going well, he doesn't stay silent. He, He brings it up to me and then we can talk about it. And sometimes it's like, Hey bro, you're dieting. You had a bad day. We, you, you helped someone move yesterday. I'm not surprised your squat went poorly, but that's okay. And I don't think I, can you have amnesia for me? Yeah, I think I can. Okay, cool. Other times it's like, no, you're probably right, Bryce. I think things are not going well for your squat and they haven't been this whole block. Let's get under the hood and sit down. Let's, let's jump on a call and figure out like, wh- why do you think that is? Um, and here's why I think that is. And then, you know, what would, what would you just do to solve this problem, Bryce? Okay. And here's what I would do. And like that, I think that's been helpful for me to see that evolution, especially as you've gotten more experienced because like the way I've approached things with other athletes will, I, I know what that continuum looks like. So I try to figure out where I, where I slot in. So for example, like with, with, with Jess, um, a lot of the times she's writing the first draft of her program and then I sit down with her, go over it because she likes to have that level of control. And sometimes I'm like, well, what do you think about this? Or like, do you, do we need that many back offsets? Or like, what about like, how many days you get in between these two? Cause that that's, that's a tight turnaround for recovery or, okay, but you're going into this one after a long night of work. Like, so it's me basically giving her an audit on her program while I have other people who would be completely intimidated or not know where to start. If like, if they, if they, they wrote the program and I audited it. So I think um, if you don't have a willingness to do that, you're probably going to lose more clients over time because people are very different. And at the same time, you also need boundaries because this is a job. It does take time. And if you are completely like, you know what, you DM me, you email me nighttime, even time, whatever. I know I'm in New Zealand, but you hit me up at 3 p.m. Even though for me, that's 3 a.m. My UK lifter. That's all good. I'll wake up, you know, and then, you know, how many questions you got? That's all right. Just fire them randomly via text to me and I'll interrupt <laughs> my dinner to a- answer you. And, uh, oh, you don't like Google Sheets? That's all right. I'll just give you, you know, like your program in a, in a text message via Instagram. Like sometimes coaches start like that because they're new on the block. They don't feel justified in even charging people, you know, let alone telling them this is how it's going to be. But you also have to create a structure and a system around your coaching with some immutable laws where everyone needs to be able to go to this because this is how I operate. And if you don't do that, you end up dropping the ball and it's your fault. So like, for example, I had a guy who this is back in the day before Google Sheets, and we, we were using Excel for, for programs and he just hated Excel. And he was like, Hey, I want to use this. And it was some other cloud program. I don't even know if it's around anymore, but he created a program. He's like, I converted it to a program in cloud and just check it every week and we'll be good to go. What I was used to getting an email update every week from, from my clients with them attaching the Excel program with what they'd filled out. So two weeks goes by and I haven't checked this cloud because there's no notifications. It's not built the way it is today. And he's like, Hey, you, you missed my report. And I was like, oh, fuck. like, I didn't put you into my system. This is my fault. You know, like yeah. I didn't say, Hey, here's how I operate. So I think you, you need to have some boundaries with what you do, but you also need to have the actual active coaching be quite flexible to operate on that continuum. And that's a difficult uh, kind of uh, fine line to walk and figure out what that looks like, especially when you're new to the game. Um, and I think I've lost many clients because of that to where I made the wrong concession or I didn't keep the right boundary, um, or I was too inflexible in, in aspects that could have been more flexible. Like, no, 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 no. Like we're going to train four days a week. Cause I mean, it's, I mean, we can't go to three. Why don't ask me why, you know, like, so I think 
a lack of flexibility uh, can get you if it's in the wrong places uh, many times because it just doesn't it doesn't leave the door open for the those cases of of things that are outside of the norm with your clients, which you're going to have more often than you would probably realize. Yeah, some people go with their coach. And at least now, at least it appears this way. Anyways, like you become like friendly, you're part of like the click, especially these days. Right. And, um, and that's part of the marketing to get more people and people come because yes, the coaching has got to be on point, but it looks like I'm joining like a click. I'm joining that. So when you get in there, if it feels too professional and too many boundaries or whatever, they're kind of like, I just don't feel that. And and sometimes it helps that inspiration to be a little, you know, if it feels too uh, surgical, almost there's not a lot of inspiration there. It's still sports sports. You do need like to an extent. And that's, that's the tough line. Cause to an extent, a coach does need to be able to rally the troops and be like, let's go, let's get at them. Like, where are we at right now? You know what I mean? Like the night before a big contest or whatever. And you're like, if you get some weird vibes, you know, I remember there, there's another thing when Joey's on the podcast, he's like, um, for sure. You got some people that you, you can't read like that, but he's like, I think I'm, he goes, one of my better suits is if I think I got a vibe on somebody and he's like, I think this is one of me, one of those people the night before I'm going to give him a ring and be like, you know, give them some talk. You know what I mean? And sometimes that's what it is. The difference where what this person in this coaching service, that coaching service might give you are going to be very similar, right? Because a lot of people, you know, whatever they're, it, they, they have a lot of expertise, et cetera, but then that little extra now you don't want to go too far extra because you break down barriers and you'll be forever holding hands. But you also want to be at the same time able to be like, if I got to inspire you, I will. And then if you have a, if you ever have a fucking moment where somebody feels like they're walking through fire and you just held their hand when they went through it, you got them like the rent, you know, and you know that as a coach, you know, that like when someone's like anxiety, where something's coming up and you're like, this is where we solidify this relationship. So it's tough. It's freaking tough because you knowing that it's sports, it's so emotional the way, you know, but on the flip side, you also be like, yeah, but I'm, I also am living a life and I got like 35 other people and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, if you open that doorway, they might always be coming back to you. It's a difficult one, man. Yeah. I think, I think if you want to do this, you need to fall in love with the idea of coaching and understanding that, that coaching and programming are completely different skill sets. Like there are elements of what you've learned through coaching that might affect your programming. You know, like if, if this, this, this tends to get them really motivated, uh, they need, they need an easier day midweek. Like you're going to have some psychological aspects that inform the way you structure your training. That'll differ from person to person. It won't just be all, you know, exercise science textbook is what dictates the, uh, the Excel sheet plus individual response. It's not that simple. Um, it has elements of coaching, but like, if you're not actually coaching, I don't think you should call yourself a coach and you need to know the limits of what you can do, whether you're working in a, like, do you have a gym? Do you have training sessions with your folks who are around you or are you purely online? Are you a platform coach? So like, for example, I know my limitations. Like I have a partnership with Matt and Susie Gary because they're the ones who handle Bryce at all the big meets. And we have a, uh, you know, a, a get together with, with the four of us or the three of us, depending on who's going to handle Bryce on that day. And we talk about everything leading up to that point. And I am handing over like, like the keys and going like, Hey, th- this is your domain. You're going to have eyes on this. You've handled at this point. Now I haven't handled Bryce like 
uh, very infrequently. And when I do handle as part of a team, like with, with the, the USAPL coaches, the last time I was the only handler for Bryce was like 2012, you know, like, so oh yeah. So Matt Gary is, is a, is a far better Bryce Lewis platform coach than I, and I have, fortunately the emotional intelligence, not to feel like I have staked some claim because I've worked with him and that I need to know that or whatever. And probably also because I look at it as, you know, Bryce is the one who knows himself best and how do we leverage that? And so things like that, or, you know, back in the day, looking into potential sports psychologists who could help Bryce to become this the Mr. Consistency he is today, knowing my limits, but also being available and being able to uh, point him in the right direction listen and just reflect and, and hear what he has to say. Like that stuff is people don't, you can't quantify how important it is. So it often gets undervalued, especially among the more quantitatively focused folks who are like a programming kilos going up numbers, PRs, number of champions. But yeah, if, if you can't, if you can't provide that, um, then you're not coaching. And uh, I think that's a, a really important distinction. And it's also just as if not, I would argue quite easily more important than what goes onto that, that pen and paper is the communication process and, um, and being able to develop a relationship, which is essentially what coaching is. So if, if you have created firewalls in your, in your systems to where you can't actually develop relationships with your athletes, you're not coaching. So mm-hmm. like, that's not the goal, but every relationship does have boundaries. Okay. Every healthy relationship has boundaries and, and uh, this should be, you know, like, like any other relationship, you have a healthy relationship and you just want to make sure that the boundaries are facilitative of, of make, of having a good athlete coach relationship, not just simply a way to keep them out of your DMS when you're eating dinner. Like that's, that's part of it, but that's actually a very small part of it. Really it's them, you know, fostering a sense of autonomy and competence too. Like, there's a, there's a saying we have with our bodybuilding clients, like there's no emergency in bodybuilding. Like for, for someone new who's going through the process of dieting, it's very emotionally stressed. I'm like on Wednesday, like coach, I got 10 more grams of carbs to hit. Like, what should I do? And it's like, I want you to try to figure it out and then tell me what happened tomorrow and don't do anything brash. Like I need more guidance than that. Like, no, you don't. Like if I, if I handhold you every time you can't figure out how to hit your macros, when are you going to actually develop some autonomy and skill sets here? You know, how are you like, I, I will give you the emotional support, but I want you to learn how to manage this emotionally stressful situation of what do I do with this hard day when I'm really stressed out by the fact that that nationals is two weeks out, if we take it into a powerlifting context, you know, and then let's talk about it next time. All right. So when do we think that's worth skipping a day? When do we think that's worth this drop and load? When do we think that's worth just cutting the accessories and hitting the main lift? When do we think it's worth just dropping the RPE, you know, and and how do we develop that in you? Because ultimately, if most of us are doing online coaching, which we are, we have to be able to give our athletes the tools to be, to have us on their shoulder and help them make good decisions in our absence because we won't be there. You know, we can't be there in the kitchen and in the gym for every single session. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Some people are if they have a gym or they hop on Skype. But if we're talking about your typical, I'm trying to make a median income level wage from coaching. You're going to have like 30 athletes who are reporting to you on a weekly or biweekly basis. And you're using Excel spreadsheets and you're seeing videos three days after the fact, most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. At at best. So if that's your model and you aren't developing autonomy and teaching your athletes to be competent and primarily being in a supportive role, and you're trying to do this top down, you're going to be missing a ton of stuff. 
and it's and and they're not going to be better for their time working with you to the to, to, to the degree they could have been if you were to really kind of build them up and give them tools and be a mentor in addition to just a program writer it's um it takes a lot of confidence to be able to a do what you just said where it's like you shouldn't depend on me. You should depend on yourself for a lot of things. Be like, because when they depend on you, then all of a sudden you're the fucking master, right? Like you, you know, how can they leave you now when they need you so much? Whatever. Yeah. So that codependency thing can happen, but also it takes confidence to be like, I know what I'm good at, and um, and you're going to get far further in life when you start doing this. And you seek out, like when you said you got Matt Gary. That's that's what um, Jason Trombley and Strength guys do with Taylor Atwood. So all the, like, like he's several times there. It's Matt Gary too, by the way, like Matt Gary, you want a game day coach. If, if it's close, I have seen Matt Gary take Bryce and in the preview shows are like, I don't think, well, I think Bryce is, is phenomenal. I don't think he's going to win this one. The other guy's stronger. And, um, and Matt Gary will get a fucking win out of there. And it's like, Holy shit. And, and Matt Gary's like, is what it is, man. Just get me close. And sometimes it's close enough. You know what I mean? Like in powerlifting, it is like that. Some people don't know, but uh, like, like if it's just the law, if it is what it, if it's like a 50 kilo, whatever, Matt Gary ain't doing it. But um, the guy's a wizard when it comes to game day. Right. But it takes like, like, like as other coaching services will also meet Matt, get Matt Gary and stuff all the time, but more than just handling, but for a lot of things, you know, uh, like I, again, I'm using strength guys. Cause in that one podcast, they, they're like known for having a bunch of different coaches working with Taylor, but Jason will always send, you know, Taylor off to see people if it's an RMT or whatever the hell, if he's like, this is out of my expertise, just being humble. And actually people think if I tell you, this is not my area to expertise, I'm going to get somebody else who I think is better. You, if you're insecure, you'll think as soon as I see that you don't think I'm that guy. So I'm going to lose you in reality. They actually believe you more. They actually trust you more nobody believes the guy or the girl who's like, I know what all, trust me. So you're going to do this. Y'all do this. You're going to do that. Y'all do it. You're doing everything. You do it all yourself. All, all these aspects. You're the number one person you could get your hands on to help me out. Yeah. I do it all. I do everything. And I'm it's not, just I'm the, one. it's a terrible self-fulfilling anti-prophecy too. Like, so you're super insecure. So you're trying to be the personal Jesus of everything for this athlete. And then guess what? You aren't because you're not. They don't do well. And it's your fault. <laughs> like back to now that, earlier, yeah, it's the pressure's on you, right? So like with, with me, like if I have this collaborative approach with Bryce and he, you know, he had half the input into the program, we share that L just like we share that W, you know, mm. obviously he gets more W because I, I didn't, I ain't put 340 kilos on my back, but nonetheless, like <laughs> he's like, if it's all me and I made every decision and I told you that I am the guru and then you fail, I can't then turn around and be like, oh, you dropped the ball. No, that's, that's on you, bro. Like, nah, obviously I put myself in a position to make me your, 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 your false idol and I'm going to come crashing down. I don't want that kind of pressure. And in fact, I actively try to dissuade that because sometimes people, if you are known, if you have a popular coaching company, and this is a good message to anybody out there who's you know, coming up on success you're going to get people who come to you who have expectations of you basically being magic, you know, mm. and a really important thing you want to do is dissuade them of that because you need them to actually be involved. 
You don't want them to think that you have special sauce. You want them to engage in the only real special sauce there is, which is good communication and collaboration. You know, I can't put myself inside your shoes and inside your mind as a lifter. You're my most important source of information for what I do as a coach. So if you're like, no, 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 don't ask me. Like, what do you think, coach? And I'm like, well, no, that's not the way it works. I need to know what is going on. How was that gym, gym session? What's going on in your life? Do you think and do you have belief in what we're doing or not? Are there things you learned previously? What has worked for you? People think that there's a like a method or a kind of like a, a savant skill to being a good coach, but really it's in how much can I pull out of you so I can have more data to make a more specific informed decision about your specific needs. Um, so it is the, uh, the stonewall soldiers who I have the hardest time with who will be like, you know what? I'll drink blood. You tell me what to do. I'll do it. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I, I, I can give you the program in my book, but I, I need to know like what has previously worked for you and what has not, or I, there's nothing, you know, I got nothing. Yeah. Well, that's it. Some people do want to be that tough guy. Like just throw it all at me. Oh, fucking, you know what I mean? Like I've been that dude sometimes if I'm honest, but it's because you want to prove yourself to that um, elite level coach too, to be like, I deserve to be here. I can hang. I could, you know, it's like, well, yeah, like you'll get through your weeks for sure. No matter what I got you, you're going to go in there and slug it out. But are, are you, are we going to get the most out of you because you did that? And that's tough. That's a whole nother thing. I've had a couple of athletes like try to like protect me or something where they're like, oh, I, I didn't want to bother you with this information. Like it didn't seem relevant. And like, I, I don't want you to have to worry about that stuff. I'm like, it, it matters though. Like you moved house this week and your boyfriend kicked you out. Like Jesus, that's going to affect your training. Like I, it doesn't, I need to know about that stuff. We need, we need to talk about that stuff. Like, how is that affecting you? Like, presumably this is going to keep affecting you. Maybe we should talk about what's, what's coming up as well. Like, you know, it's uh does no one, no one benefit just like keeping it to yourself. No matter, no matter the reason. Yeah. I can see where people don't want to offload on you. Cause you're a coach and like, am I taking advantage? She's like, look, you don't got to get into the details, but if you're going through some shit and things are going to be different for the next, however long, let me know. So I'm not like, okay, all systems to go. We're moving to six days a week and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. Where we can like, figure it out. But only if we know there's actually something to figure out. Otherwise it's just like, you know, Oh, weird. Squat was low that week. Wonder what happened. Guess we'll never know. <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, I suck because I'm doing the same thing we always done. And all of a sudden everything's shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That would be tough. Um, when you were talking about genetic freaks, I, uh, I remember a story Dana White was saying he sent Yoel Romero, who's a Cuban um, wrestler. He was like a world champion in wrestling. He's in the UFC and he sent him to see a doctor to save his eye And the doctor. And I mean, I don't know if you, do you know who Yoel Romero is? I don't follow. I I mean, I'm assuming, uh, no. Okay. I'll I'll send you. you, uh, I like how you're going to try to beat me halfway. You're like, no, I was trying. I wanted to help you. That's a good guy. You are, Um, you're going to coach me through this, but I'll send you a picture of him, but he's literally in his forties and fucking absolutely diced. And like, um, he's a, he's a genetic freak, genetic freak. Right. And I like, I'm interested in the, in the outliers. 1% That's why I asked you about genetic freaks. Cause I know you work with some genetic freaks, obviously Bryce, Jessica, I assume is a genetic freak. So, um, Dana White sent you Romero to see this doctor 
and the doctor's going to work on his eye. Now, Yoel Romero, everything I told you, he came up in Cuba, a world champion. I mean, from fucking like six years old, he's in the system of training to be a, an Olympic weightlifter, or sorry, wrestler, becomes a world champion the whole night. Now he's in his 40s, he's a professional MMA fighter, still in his 40s fighting for world titles and shit. I'll send you a picture and you'll be like, Keska fuck. But um, the, he sent him to see a doctor and the doctor is cutting into his eye and uh, the doctor's like, so he calls Yoel, or sorry, Dana. He's like, what's this guy's story? Like, where did you find this guy? And Dana's like, what do you mean? He's like, I've never seen anything like this. He goes, first off, when he came in, I read his sheet. I'm like, this guy's not the age he's saying he is, no? And Dana's like, no, he is. He's like, okay, well, okay, we'll park that. Put a pin in that. Because what the fuck? I thought it was the wrong guy. And he goes, uh, second off, he had three to four times the muscle tissue around his eye that I've ever seen with anybody in my life. And I've been, I've been doing this for 25 years. Up to four times the muscle tissue around his, his eye. This is his eye. You don't work out your, your fucking face. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't a muscle group that he's working out too often. How did he build that muscle mass so much around his eye? And uh, like, uh, let alone the, the muscles he does work. And he's in, so Dana's like, had the surgery grow. And he goes, well, like four times longer than I thought it was going to be. And he's like, I don't know how much he's like, I don't know, man, I've never worked on something like this before. This is a specimen, but uh, it's just, there are freaks like that though. There are people walking around that are just absolute genetic freaks, one percenters. So back to when you said earlier, how people are like, well, this person must be on steroids because it's like, maybe, maybe, yeah, there's cheaters, but it's not like you think it is. The difference between all of us in this conversation and Russell or he is significant and it's not, it's just genetically significant. And even though if we're like, well, how much stronger could he possibly be? He's got to be on. No, man, there are so many levels to genetics. It's insane. But we know people walking around, you know, and, and um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's interesting what the one percenters actually could be before they ever take anything. Now imagine these individuals yeah. take something, you know? I think people um, underestimate how like, like the variance between people and their, we'll call it genetics. And then they overestimate what drugs can actually do. Mm. Um, and it, cause it's not that drugs don't do a crazy crap. Don't get me wrong, but like, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that I could go on every possible pharmaceutical intervention on the planet and go up to the 105s, I ain't cracking the mid-700s, if I had well, to guess. Well, we're going to try with Rory, remember? We're, we're going to try this. Well, let's I want to see. Yeah, and then that's even hey, throwing equipment into it. It's yeah. for science. I'm, it's for science. We need it. to see uh, where we're going to push Eric, this. I do need you to sponsor my CPAP machine, though, because... Uh, <laughs> you're going to need it. You're going to be breathing pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah, well, you're going to be blowing all your money on, on GH, so I, you're not going to have anything left for the CPAP. That's true. Yeah, this is going to be an expensive project. Uh, the, yeah, make Rory see. I want to see if Rory can squat a thousand pounds. I mean, legit, you know. He, I want to like, see if he can bench. Yeah. I like that see too. If I can bench bench sure. over two hundred. Go to three hundred pounds. Multiply. Uh, ton of gear. Um, multi multiply bench. Get a touch at in the two hundred somewhere. It's it's worth it. Um, I had something else I was going to throw it's out worth there. It for you. 
Yeah, for us, Come we on. take no risk. We're just interested. Yeah, <laughs> just interested. Yeah. Hey, yo, he comes back. You get a text. You're like, are we still doing? Holy fuck! We're like three months yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, you're like, like real? I think my foot amputation is going to cause a slight problem. And I'm like, wait, this is just a joke on a podcast. What happened? Like, you know? <laughs> you're like, I thought this was a running gag. We're just fucking around in the DMs. You're like, this guy sent me a picture. It's like, is that you, Rory? He's like, I don't have a foot. It's like, but face I can- is completely change shape like bald. I've I, I, i'm like how are you taking selfies did you give your phone to a biker gang member and you're like that's me bro yeah <laughs> that's me bro but i'm fucking shifting weights out here um i want to ask you look we've been chatting like holy shit we're well over two hours now um how are you for, i just have like two more questions how are you for time Let's do it. And maybe we'll actually stay on topic and we can get through. How about, how about that? Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's not how we do things around here. No, it's not. But we can wish. We can hope. We're, yeah. we, okay. Um, and dude, we got to have you back on at some point because holy fuck, we just smashed two hours. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. I can't believe we took this long to do this. But um, anyways, here we are. Um, I wanted a little more of a personal note. What is your favorite movie and actor? Well, that's tough. That is very it. tough. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it used to be Edward Norton. I like it, the, he, he had an era where he was just dropping some amazing movies and like some really obscure ones. Y'all would never know, like, like death to smoochie and some other really good ones. I think I really, really loved him in fight club. And oh. that is definitely up there is potentially one of my favorite movies. That's a, that's an awesome one. Um, so I might default to my what I what I've historically said is be Edward Norton and then Fight Club, um, but there are just so many good movies. It's very difficult to to answer that question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with that because it's 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 it's, uh, it's something I is is close. It was true for Eric Helms at least at some point in his life. We'll say that. I um I remember Fight Club, like first off, phenomenal movie. I won't give the ending away because even though it's super old, there'll be some people younger who are who are listening to this. And they'll check out Fight Club and holy shit, that twist ending's phenomenal. But um, I remember when Fight Club was out and uh, it showed, um, there was a clip where one of either it was Brad Pitt or Edward Norton goes, time to, fake, time to take Fight Club up a notch. And um, me and my buddy in the gym, when we were going to like push it, we're like, time to take Fight Club up a notch. And we would load up all our weight. Then I shit you not, Fight Club comes out and that didn't make the cut. And we had been saying this for months. And we were like, what the fuck? And we were both like, you know, wicked movie. And when you see the ending, you're like, oh my God. But we both looked at each other like, gotta be said. Oh, we kind of been doing this for months now. This is our thing. And it, it didn't make the cut. Like, that was you awesome. love it when it's only in the previews. And they're like, what? Yeah. It was, I mean, you sold this. This is false advertising. Yeah. I mean, that's something nobody would notice as a nothing thing. We just happened to turn it into something. And then it's like, oh, wow. Well, well, there's that. Um, yeah. Also, favorite type of music and artist. Mm, yeah. So I I used to be really big into uh, hip hop, like underground hip hop. And yeah. um, in, my, in my youth, I still am. But I, I wouldn't say I stay up with it. So like most of my like the heyday for me was like the mid mid, mid and early 2000s oh, talking sorry. like 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 sorry. raucous records you know that that oh, era damn. yeah so like most deaf talib quali black star 
that was kind of the era where I was like, oh, this is, this is, this is the best. So I would probably say favorite artist from that era would have to be, mm, that's tough. So, okay. Favorite music. That's easy. Hip hop. Favorite artist from that era. I'm probably going to say black thought from the roots. So. Oh shit. The roots had their damn right moments, didn't they? Mm. Oh yeah. I mean, he's, He's incredibly talented, talented MC. So, yeah, was that big fan. Back, was that backpack rap? I forget. I don't know if they still say that. What was back? Was yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the super pretentious guys are like, "Not all listen to the radio." Like that right, was me. right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. That's what backpack <laughs> rap was at the time. I don't even know if they use that term anymore. But in that era, that's what it was. Like, yeah. like you, you had a band and it was like a garage band kind of deal where you're like, you hmm. listen, you listen to Fifty Cent and Eminem. You know what I mean? Well, um, see, Eminem though had had the underground credibility because he came yes, from. He did. So th- that's kind of what changed was like the 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 era where some really good MCs made it mainstream, and it's continued. You know, like Kendrick Lamar is one of the best MCs ever, but he's not underground, and I think that's that's kind of cool. So that that's something that has changed in the last I don't know fifteen twenty years is that there is a viable pathway to being a lyricist to. And it's respected a little more. It's understood. Like I remember I had an uncle at some uh, some Thanksgiving thing. And I, I, he was like, oh, do you like Eminem? And I was like, no, he's really talented. He's, he's an excellent lyricist. And he was like, well, what, what do you mean? What does he do? I mean, he just talks on the mic. And I was like, you, you really can't tell that he rhymed seven syllables and told a coherent story? No? On beat? No? Can you do that? Come on. Let, let's go, Unc. Let's go. You know, but like, it's just not something that I think the average person at that time especially if they're like a 55 year old white dude in this case was like able to really understand. And I think now there's like more people who can recognize that that maybe takes, you know, decades of a practice and talent and honing a skill. But, uh, but anyway, I just think that's kind of cool that that's some of the stuff that I thought would never be mainstream is now mainstream, which is kind of cool, but uh, I don't follow it that much to the same degree. I'll tell you, like, I remember Eminem, when he first came out, like, first off, he could do a, tr- people sometimes do double entendres. Like when Lil Wayne says two twin clippers, I'll give your ass a crew cut. Like he means, you know, like a crew cut, but he also means like twin, he's going to give you a crew cut. Um, but Eminem does triple entendres being like nothing. I'm back. Nothing changed is changed, but the locks. So I'm going to give Jada kiss. So Jada kiss is a member of the locks. who's a rap battler. Nothing's I'm back and nothing's changed, but the locks used to have blonde hair, famous for blonde hair, made a comeback without it. And then obviously the old expression, you know, ain't nothing changed, but the locks on the door. Right. So he could do triple entendres on you. And that's like, like, (laughs) fuck, how long does it take to do like four or five triple entendres in a verse? It's like, that's ridiculous ridiculous and then and, uh, and the last six syllables rhymed with the previous bar yeah, yeah. it's crazy <laughs> so, and, and yeah. he, to add to your point he did like the rap olympics and he would literally be um there's videos of him when he's like early 20s before he blew up and he would go on radio shows and they'd be like how good are you and and eminem goes well here's what we'll do um every time i'm coming up at the end of my bar say another say a word and i'll just rhyme 
and you you take over. So the guy's throwing out random words and Eminem's freestyling, rhyming off the words that aren't coming to him. So he's like, test me if you think it's written. Just tell me words and I'll fly off the cuff right now. And Eminem was spitting and the guy couldn't keep up. And Eminem's like, you got to spit him out quicker because I'm going quicker than you. Uh, you shouldn't be, you're not doing any work here, my man. And the guy's like, holy fuck. And Eminem like buried him. You know I want to change my answer, actually. I, I now remember who my favorite artist is, Idea. And probably most people haven't heard of U-Y-E-D-E-A. He died in 2011 of a drug overdose, but he was a young, he was a really a re- extremely talented young MC. And he got a little bit of mainstream credibility. Remember back in the day when they did Blaze Battle on TV? Yeah. Yeah, that was like before like the, the big battle leagues that were popular now. And he won Blaze Battle, but he's the super like out there, like Northeastern, you know, white kid, like conceptual abstract rhymer. Like if you listen to his uh, albums, it's all very intellectual. It's, it's avant-garde. It's probably like the average hip-hop fan would probably not like it, but they would recognize the talent. But he also had just ridiculous freestyle skills. Mm-hmm. And Blaze Battle, you could tell this was, this was an era where, and it still is this way, like people would come to the party with a bunch of pre-written stuff, you know, and they'd have, be able to, you know, fit it together. And they've thought about their opponent for weeks in advance or whatever. And people come to realize that Idea is the only dude in this battle actually freestyling. And they didn't understand until I remember it was him versus Shells. And in the very last battle, uh, Shells is like trying to make fun of him. He starts like pretending to like, you know, like break dance in the background. And he said something, something, something. I and I am the answer while this motherfucker is trying to be my backup dancer. And the look on Shells face, he was he just stopped like, are you you're really freestyling? Like. And uh, and he won. That's the answer. This motherfucker is trying to be my backup dancer. That's amazing. Yeah. And everyone in the competition was just like, oh, we thought he was just a little bit better than everyone. He is doing something fundamentally different. You know, like he is actually freestyling all of this. They are doing pre-written half freestyles, which is kind of just the way it goes now. Yeah. And uh, but I but, you know, that's how I found out about idea. And then I got into his stuff and he is just just an incredible thinker. If you ever want to spend some time listening to, uh, to idea, E-Y-E-D-E-A, he's uh, he's pretty, pretty incredible. I'm going to check it out. It's crazy how many, how being an artist and having like a drug problem and whatnot is like, there's something about creativity that goes hand in hand with like pain and, and uh, you know, it's weird. It's weird, but it happens far too often. It's not j- people like, well, it's fame. It's, you know, some of these guys like, like um, I, you idea was an uber famous and rich or whatever. Just, just I, idea. Yeah, idea no, no, sorry. He's very, uh, he was very popular for a period underground, but he definitely like nobody, nobody in the mainstream knows who he is for sure. So it wasn't just a fame thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And also Eminem on eight mile was the breakout for him in terms of um, everything was like you said, everyone's uncles, like anybody can rap. He's just talking until eight mile came out. And then um, people who were doing movie reviews, like just like again the 55 year old white guy who's like you know rap is ridiculous blah 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 now it's like been so long rap's been out but at the time it's rap's ridiculous whatever eight mile came out and they watched it and then that changed they were like first off hey it's a phenomenal movie second off they're like holy shit and it's like yeah now you know and on the set of eight mile which is based off of a true story but he's playing a character but on the set of eight mile they had a rap competition because it's in detroit and all of the crowd that was there in those scenes, they're all like rap artists, whatever the shit as well. And um, to keep them, you know, keep things like some days on set were super long. They had rap battles and a tournament of rap battles. And 
they took five winners and the top five get to be in the movie in Eminem in the montage might be rap battling against them. And then when they were filming it, and this is actually out there, if you want to ever watch it in, when they're filming it, they're doing the montage and the rappers that Eminem was battling um, in the montage, their mics were on and they were actually dropping like rap. Like they were actually like freestyling and dissing Eminem. And the crowd's there like, oh, oh, oh. And the movie producer's like, all right, we don't, you know, it's a montage. We don't really need you to drop shit, but whatever you won, you won battling. So let's let it go. This is fun. And Eminem's like, okay, like he gets it. It's a montage show. I don't even, his mic isn't even on. So he's rapping, doing, and they're, they're doing different camera angles. Cause that's what you do. You do different camera angles and the crowd's not getting it because they're not actor actors. So the, the camera guy's okay. Now you're going to go over here. M you're going to go over here and they're shooting, but the crowd's like, no, hang on a second. My man just was ate you alive in your Eminem. So they started booing and Eminem's like, I fuck it. This is about to happen. And if you watch what happens, he turns his mic on and fucking battles one by one, all of these guys. And it's not pre-written because he didn't know. Right. That's where you're like, yeah, that's Eminem though. Huh? Like you, you roll up on Eminem. That's what Eminem's going to do. What Eminem does. Um, like when MGK dissed Eminem before Eminem dropped his, his reply, the comments, the number one comment was, isn't this like fucking killing John Wick's dog? Like, what was he, what's, what's, what's he, what's he doing right now? What are you doing, man? You know how the story ends, huh? But, uh, but anyways, yeah, it's uh, I'm a big hip hop head too, my man. Listen, I appreciate it. I can you. tell. I can yeah. tell. I went far deeper than I expected and I'm happy about it. So <laughs> Yeah. We can do a whole other pod. I, hey, did we just start a hip hop podcast? I think we did. We did. That no one listens to is from a certain white guys talking about hip hop can't possibly go wrong. That's right. No, That's we'll right. get it all perfectly right. No one will accuse of cultural appropriation. That's right. And it'll be even especially better when when Rory's hair starts falling out. He's bald and he has a neck tap. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to see. It'll be hundred percent better. Yeah, three hundred pounds. Uh, listen, man. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely, got to have you back on. If I, hopefully I see you. And um, I mean, I'm going to be at IPF Worlds. Do you think you might be at an IPF Worlds or anything like that? I don't know. It's tough this year. Like we yeah. are just getting our borders open in a staged fashion starting in what, like a week Rory, or some shit. I can't even remember when it actually starts. Yeah, the start next week, maybe something like that. Yeah, I just got COVID. So hopefully it means that I won't have it later. I'm okay. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, I'm trying to visit my family at some point because I haven't seen them. Obviously, it's the start of the pandemic. And um, some of my extended family, that is most of my close families here. But yeah, the uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen with IPF Worlds. It'll be interesting. And um, yeah, with the whole, of course, whatever's going on with the USAPL and PA and IPF. Today's a rough, th- this is a rough year. Let's put it that way for yeah. figuring out what, what, where I'm going to be. So Fair enough, man. Well, hopefully I see you. If I see you in IPF Worlds, amazing. I'll be at Juniors in, in the Open. And um, if not, whatever, we got to do another podcast regardless. That's fro show. And you know also, uh, and also um, let people know, how do they get a hold of you in terms of like your podcast, in terms of coaching yeah. and, and all the rest? Of it? Absolutely. So, you know, these days, my primary role with 3D Muscle Journey is to be like the uh, our chief science officer, making sure that the coaches who are still working full time are up to date with the best evidence and, uh, and, and doing things in a way that makes sense. So if you are interested in working with any of us at 3D Muscle Journey, that's 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the number three, the letter D. 
and then musclejourney.com. Um, and we do have coaches who work with powerlifters as well as uh, competitive bodybuilders. So that's, that's feel free to check it out. And also it's just a great website for, you can find our podcast, our blogs, links to uh, monthly applications in strength sport, where I review the research on a monthly basis with Mike Zerdos, Greg Knuckles, and Eric Trexler. You can find links to my books that we've dropped hints about. And then if you want to listen to all things history, science, and culture as it relates to the Iron Game, uh, you can follow Iron Culture, where Omar and myself chop it up every Monday. Um, And then if you want to see me asking you to leave the platform in the way you're not supposed to and linking out to the other things I've done on Instagram and be very bored by my, my poor social media content, you can follow me at Helms3DMJ for the more daily link outs to other random podcasts. I'm sure this will be one of those squares that I'll drop <laughs> asking people to, to sign out of Instagram and, and open iTunes. So, yeah. But dude, you got an amazing personality. I mean, your podcast and everything, everybody should be checking them out because you could take any kind of topic and make it interesting. It's literally a skill to keep people entertained for this long and like storytelling and antidotes and the whole nine. So, you would know six pack lapidus. Oh, thank you, sir. Oh, thank you, sir. And Rory, um, how do people get a hold of you again, sir? Uh, Instagram, Rory Lynch, TikTok, Rory Lynch, or specificstrength.com uh, would be the, the three best places to go. There it is. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We'll keep in touch. Yes, sir. Thank, thank you. See ya.